The following is a conversation with Boris Soffman, who is the Senior Director of Engineering and Head of Trucking at Waymo, the autonomous vehicle company, formerly the Google Self-Driving Car Project. Before that, Boris was the co-founder and CEO of Anki, a robotics company that created Cosmo, which, in my opinion, is one of the most incredible social robots ever built. It's a toy robot, but one with an emotional intelligence that creates a fun and engaging human-robot interaction. It was truly sad for me to see Anki shut down when he did. I had high hopes for those little robots. We talk about this story and the future of autonomous trucks, vehicles, and robotics in general. I spoke with Steve Vaselli recently on episode 237 about the human side of trucking. This episode looks more at the robotic side. If you're listening to this on Spotify, there's now both a video and an audio version, so you can watch and or listen. I decided to remove ads on Spotify except for a quick few second mention of each sponsor now. No full ad reads, no ads in the middle. As a fan of podcasts myself, I personally really don't like those uh, mid-roll ads. If you want to support the podcast, best way is to check out the sponsors in the description. First is Element, my go-to electrolyte drink mix. Second is Athletic Greens, the only one nutrition drink I drink twice a day. Third is Roka, my favorite sunglasses and prescription glasses. Fourth is Indeed, a hiring website. And fifth is BetterHelp, an online therapy service. So the choice is health, style, having a great team, or an impenetrable mental fortitude. Choose wisely, my friends. This is the Lex Friedman Podcast, and here is my conversation with Boris Soffman. Who is your favorite robot in science fiction, books or movies? Wally and R2-D2, where they were able to convey such an incredible degree of intent, emotion, and kind of character attachment without having any language whatsoever, um, and just purely through the emotion, richness of uh, emotional interaction. So those are fantastic. And then uh, the Terminator series, just like really, <laughs> pretty, <laughs> like pretty wide, from wide range, right? Uh, but uh, I kind of love this uh, dynamic where you have this like incredible Terminator itself that, that Arnold played, but, uh, and then he was kind of like the inferior, like previous generation version that was like totally outmatched, uh, you know, in terms of kind of specs by the new one, but, you know, still kind of like held his own. And so it was kind of interesting where you, you realize how many, how many levels there are on the spectrum from human to kind of potentials and AI and robotics to uh, futures. And so, yeah, that movie really, uh, as much as it was like kind of a dark world in a way, was actually quite fascinating, gets the imagination going. Well, from an engineer perspective, both the movies you mentioned, uh, Wally and uh, Terminator, uh, the first one is probably achievable. You know, humanoid robot, maybe not with like the realism in terms of skin and so on, but that humanoid form, we have that humanoid form. It seems like a compelling form. Maybe the challenge is it's super expensive to, to, to build, but you can imagine, maybe not a machine of war, yeah. But you could imagine Terminator-type robots walking around. Yeah. Uh, and then the same, obviously, with, with Wally. You've basically, so for people who don't know, you uh, created the company Anki that created uh, a small robot with a big personality called Cosmo that just it does exactly what Wally does, which is somehow with very few basic visual tools is able to communicate a depth of emotion. And that's fascinating. 
but then again, the humanoid form is uh, super compelling. So like uh, Cosmo is very distant from a humanoid form. Yeah. And then the Terminator has a humanoid form. And you can imagine both of those actually being in our society. It's true. And it's interesting because um, it, it was very intentional to go really far away from human form when you think about a character like Cosmo or like Wally, where um, you can completely rethink uh, the constraints you put on that character, um, what tools you leverage, and then how you actually create a personality uh, and a level of intelligence interactivity that actually matches the constraints that you're under, whether it's uh, mechanical or sensors or AI of the day. This is why I almost um, was always really surprised by how much energy people put towards trying to replicate human form mm -hmm. in a robot because you actually take on some pretty significant um, kind of constraints and, and downsides when you do that. Mm -hmm. um, the first of which is obviously the cost where it's just the, the articulation of a human body is just so like magical um, in both the precision as well as the dimensionality that to replicate that even in its clo reasonably close form takes like a giant amount of joints and actuators and uh, and motion and, and, you know, sensors and encoders and so forth. But then um, you're almost like setting an expectation that the closer you try to get to human form, the more you expect the strengths to match. And that's not the way AI works is there's places where you're way stronger and there's places where you're weaker. And by moving away from human form, you can actually uh, change the rules and embrace your strengths and bypass your weaknesses. And at the same time, the human form like has way too many degrees of freedom to play with. It's it's kind of con counterintuitive, just as you're saying. But when you have fewer constraints, it's almost harder to master the the, the communication of emotion. Like you see this with cartoons, like stick figures. You can communicate quite a lot with just very minimal, like two dots for eyes and a line for, for a smile. I think it, like you can almost communicate arbitrary levels of emotion with just two dots and a line. Yeah, And like, that's enough. And if you focus on just that, you can communicate the full range. And then yeah. you, like, if you do that, then you can focus on the actual magic of, of uh, human and dot line interaction versus all the engineering mess. That's right. Like dimensionality, voice, all these sort of things, they actually become a crutch yeah. where you get lost in the search space almost. Um, and so some of the best animators that we've worked with, um, they almost like study when they come up, uh, you know, kind of in, in building their expertise by forcing these um, projects where all you have is like a ball that can like kind of jump and manipulate itself or yeah. like really, really like, aggressive constraints where you're forced to kind of ex ex extract the deepest level of emotion. And so in a lot of ways, um, you know, we thought, when we thought about Cosmo, I was like, you're, you're right. Like our, if we had to like describe it in like one small phrase, it was bringing a Pixar character to life in the real world. It's, uh, it's, it's what we were going for. And, um, and in a lot of ways, what was interesting is that with like Wally, which we studied incredibly deeply, and in fact, some of our team were, you know, kind of had worked previously at um, at Pixar and on that project. Um, they intentionally constrained Wally as well, even though in an animated film you could do whatever you wanted to, because it forced you to like really saturate the smaller amount of dimensions. But uh, you sometimes end up getting a far more beautiful output. Um, because you're pushing at the extremes um, of this emotional space in a way that you just wouldn't because you get lost in a surface area uh, if you have like something that is just infinitely articulable. So if we backtrack a little bit, and uh, you thought of Cosmo in 2011 and 2013 actually uh, designed and built it. What is Anki? What is Cosmo? 
I guess, who is Cosmo? Who is <laughs> and Cosmo, uh, yeah. uh, what was the vision behind this incredible little robot? We started uh, Anki back in, like, like, while we were still in graduate school. So myself and my two co-founders, we were PhD students uh, in the Robotics Institute at Carnegie Mellon. Um, and so we were uh, studying robotics, AI, machine learning, kind of different, you know, different uh, uh, areas. One of my co-founders was working on walking robots, uh, you know, uh, for a period of time. And so we all had a um, a bit of a, really deep kind of a, a deeper passion for applications of robotics and AI where um th there's like a spectrum where there's people that get like really fascinated by the theory of AI and machine learning and robotics where um whether it gets applied in the near future or not is less of a kind of factor on them but they love the pursuit of the like the challenge and that's necessary and there's a lot of incredible breakthroughs that happen there we're probably closer to the other end of the spectrum where we love the technology and the um and all the evolution of it but we were really driven by applications like how can you really reinvent experiences and functionality and build value that wouldn't have been possible without um, these approaches and and that's what drove us and we had a kind of some experiences through previous jobs and internships where we like got to see the applied side of robotics and at that time there was actually relatively few applications of robotics um, that were outside of um you know, peer research or industrial applications, um, military applications and so forth. There were very few outside of it. So maybe, you know, iRobot was like one exception and maybe there were a few others, but for the most part, there weren't that many. And so we got excited about consumer applications of robotics where you could leverage way higher levels of intelligence um, through software to create value and experiences that were just not possible um, in, in those fields today. Um, and we saw kind of a, a pretty wide range of applications um, that varied in the complexity of what it would take to actually solve those. And what we wanted to do was to commercialize this into a company, but actually do a bottoms-up approach where we could have a huge impact in a space that was ripe to have an impact at that time, and then build up off of that and move into other areas. And entertainment became the place to start mm -hmm. because... Um, you had relatively little innovation in a toy space, uh, an entertainment space. You had these really rich um, experiences in video games and uh, and movies, but there was like this chasm in between. And so we thought that we could really reinvent that experience. And there was a a really fascinating transition technically that was happening at the time where the cost of components was plummeting because of the mobile phone industry and then the smartphone industry. And so the cost of a microcontroller, of a camera, of a motor, of memory, of microphones, cameras was dropping by orders of magnitude. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, with the iPhone coming out in 2000, uh, I think it was 2007, I believe, yeah, uh, right. um, you, it started to become apparent within a couple of years that this could become a really incredible interface device and the brain with much more computation behind a physical world experience mm -hmm. that wouldn't have been possible previously. Um, and so... Um, we really got excited about that and how we push all the complexity from the physical world into software by using really inexpensive components, but putting huge amounts of complexity into the AI side. And so Cosmo became our second product. And then the one that we're probably most proud of, the idea there was to create a physical character that had enough understanding and awareness of the physical world around it and the context that mattered to feel like uh, like he was alive. Um, and uh, to be able to have these like emotional kind of connections and experiences with people that you would typically only find uh, inside of a movie. And the motivation very much was was Pixar. Like we had an incredible uh, respect and appreciation for what they were able to um, build in this like really beautiful fashion and film. Um, but it was always like a you know, one, it was virtual, and two, it was like a story on rails that had no interactivity to it. It was uh, very fixed. 
and it obviously had a magic to it, but where you really start to hit like a different level of experiences when you're actually able to physically interact with our robot. And, and then that was your idea with Anki, like the first product was the cars. Yeah. So basically you take, you take a toy, you add intelligence into it in the same way you would add intelligence into AI systems within a video game, but you're not bringing it into the physical space. So the idea is, is really brilliant, which is you're basically bringing video games to life. Exactly. That's exactly right. We literally use that exact same phrase because in the case of Drive, this was a parallel of the racing genre. Yeah. And the goal was to effectively have a physical racing experience, but have a virtual state at all times that matches what's happening in the physical world. And then you can have a video game off of that and you can have uh, different characters, different traits for your uh, the cars, um, weapons and interactions and special abilities and all these sort of things that you think of virtually, but then you can have it physically. And um, one of the things that we were like really surprised by that really stood out and immediately led us to really like kind of accelerate the path towards um, Cosmo is that things that feel like they're really constrained and simple in the physical world, they have an amplified impact on people where mm -hmm. the exact same experience virtually would not have anywhere near the impact, but seeing it physically really stood out. And so effectively we've, with, with Drive, we were creating a video game engine for the physical world. Um, and then with Cosmo, we expanded that video game engine to create a character and, and uh, uh, kind of an animation and interaction engine on top of it that, allowed us to start to create these much more rich experiences. And a lot of those elements were uh, almost like a proving ground for what would human-robot interaction feel like in a domain that's much more forgiving, where you can make mistakes in a game. Mm -hmm. It's okay if like, uh, if you know, a car goes off the track or if, uh, if Cosmo makes a mistake. Um, and what's funny is actually we were so worried about that. Um, in reality, we realized very quickly that those mistakes can be endearing. And if you make a mistake, as long as you realize you make a mistake and have the right emotional reaction to it, it builds even more empathy yeah. with the character. Yeah, that's brilliant. Uh, which is exactly. So when uh, the, the thing you're optimizing for is fun, you have so much more freedom to fail, to explore. Mm -hmm. And and also in the toy space, like all of this is really brilliant. And I, I got to ask you, backtrack. It seems for a roboticist to take us jump in into the direction of fun is a brilliant move because one you have the freedom to explore and to design all those kinds of things and you can also build cheap robots yeah. like you don't have to like if, if you're not chasing perfection and like toys it's understood that you can go cheaper yeah. which means in robot it's still expensive but it's actually affordable by a large number of people so it's a really brilliant space to explore yeah that's right it's uh and in fact we realized pretty quickly that like perfection is actually not fun yeah because like in a traditional robotic roboticist sense the first kind of path planner and uh this is the you know the part that i worked, worked on out of the gate was like a lot of the kind of ai systems where you had these you know vehicles and you know cars racing kind of making optimal maneuvers to try to kind of get ahead and you realize very quickly that like that's actually not fun because you want the like chaos from mistakes yeah. and the uh, and so you start to kind of intentionally almost add noise to the system uh in order to kind of create more of a realism in the exact same way the human player might start really ineffective and inefficient and then start to kind of increase their quality bar as they um uh, as they progress and there is a really really aggressive constraint that's forced on you by a, being a consumer product where the price point matters a ton particularly in like kind of an entertainment where um you know you you can't make a thousand dollar product unless you're going to meet the like the expectations of a thousand dollar product. Mm -hmm. And so, um, in order to make this work, like your cost of goods had to be like 
like you know, well under a hundred dollars. Uh, uh, in the case of Cosmo, we got it under fifty dollars end to end, fully packaged and delivered. And it was under two hundred dollars uh, at retail. The, co- yeah. the cost at retail. Yeah. So uh, okay, if we sit down like at the early stages, if we go back to that, and you're sitting down and thinking about what Cosmo looks like from a yeah. design perspective and from a cost perspective, I imagine that was part of the conversation. Um, well, first of all, what came first? Did you have a cost in mind? Is there a target you're trying to chase? Did you have a vision in mind, like size? Did you have, because there's a lot of unique qualities to Cosmos. So for people who don't know, they should definitely check it out. Is uh, There's a display, there's eyes on the, the little display yeah. and those eyes can, it's pretty uh, low resolution eyes, right? But they, they still are able to convey a lot of emotion. And there's this arm like that. Uh, lift sort of. Uh, lift yeah. stuff, but there's something about arm movement that adds even more kind of depth. It's like uh, the face communicates emotion and sadness and disappointment and happiness. And then the arms kind of communicates, I'm trying here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm doing my best <laughs> yeah. in this no, no, complicated uh, world. Exactly. So it's um, uh, it's interesting because like um, they, all of Cosmo is only four degrees of freedom. And two of them are the two treads, which is for basic yes. movement. And so you literally have only... A head that goes up and down, yeah. a lift that goes up and down, and then your two wheels. Yeah. Uh, and you have sound uh, and a screen, yeah. and a low-resolution screen. And with that, it's actually pretty incredible what you can uh, what you can come up with. Where, like you said, it's a uh, it's a really interesting give and take because there's a lot of ideas far beyond that. Obviously, as you can imagine, where, like you said, how big is it? How much degrees of freedom? What does he look like? Um, uh, what does he sound like? How does he communicate? It's, it's a formula that actually scales way beyond entertainment. This is the formula for human r- kind of robot interface more generally is you almost have this triangle between um, the physical aspects of it, the mechanics, the industrial design, what's mass producible, the cost constraints and so forth. Uh, you have the AI side of how do you understand the world around you, interact intelligently with it, execute what you want to execute. So perceive the environment, make intelligent decisions and and move forward. And then you have the character side of it. Um, most uh, companies have done anything in human-robot interaction really uh, miss the mark or underinvest in the character side of it. Mm-hmm. Um, they overinvest in the mechanical side of it, uh, you know, and then varied results on the AI side of it. And so the thinking is that you put more mechanical flexibility into it, you're going to do better. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't necessarily. You actually create a much higher bar uh, for a high ROI because now your price point goes up, your expectations go up. And if the AI can't meet it or the overall experience isn't there, you, you miss the mark. Um, so who, like, how did you, through those conversations, get the cost down so much and make it, made it so simple? Like that, there's a big theme here because you come from the Mecca of robotics, which is Carnegie Mellon University robotics. Like for all the people I've interacted with that come from there or just from, you know, the world experts at robotics, they don't they would never build something like Cosmo. Yeah. And so where did that come from? So the, the simplicity. This, it came from this this combination of a team that we had. And it was, it was quite cool because like we, and by the way, you ask anybody that's like experienced in the like kind of, you know, toy entertainment space, you'll never sell a product over $99. Um, that was fundamentally false. And we believed it to be false. It was because the experience had to kind of, you know, meet the mark. Mm-hmm. And so we pushed past that amount, but there was a pressure where the higher you go, the more seasonal you become and the tougher it becomes. And so on the cost side, we very quickly partnered up with some previous contacts that we worked with where, just as an example, one our head of mechanical engineering um, 
was one of the earliest heads of engineering at Logitech and has a billion units of consumer products in circulation <laughs> that he's worked on. Yeah. So like crazy, low-cost, high-volume consumer product experience. We had a really great mechanical engineering team and just a very practical mindset where we were not going to compromise on feasibility in the market in order to chase something that would be enabler. And we pushed a huge amount of expectations onto the software team where, yes, we're going to use cheap uh, noisy motors and sensors, but we're going to fix it in the, um, on the software side. Then we found on the design and character side, there was a faction that was more from like a game design background that thought that it should be very games-driven, Cosmo, where you create a whole bunch of games experiences and it's all about like game mechanics. And then there was... Um, a, a fashion which my my co-founder and I are most involved in this, like really believed in, which was character driven. And the argument is that you will never compete with what you can do virtually from a game standpoint, but you actually, on the character side, put this into your wheelhouse and put it more towards your advantage because a physical character has a massively higher impact uh, physically than virtually. This is, okay, can I just pause on that? Because this yeah. is so brilliant. When I, uh, for people who don't know, Cosmo plays games with you. But there's also a depth of character. And I actually, when I was, you know, uh, playing with it, I wondered exactly what is the compelling aspect of this? Because to me, obviously, I'm I'm biased, but to me, the character, yeah. I get what I enjoyed most, honestly, or what got me to return to it is the character. That's right. But that's, that's a fascinating discussion of, uh, you're right, ultimately, you cannot compete on the quality of the gaming experience. It's too restrictive. The physical world is just too restrictive. Yeah. And uh, you don't have a graphics engine. It's like all this. But on the character side, we, uh, and clearly we moved in that direction as like kind of the the the, the winning path. And um, we partnered up with this uh, really, we immediately like went towards Pixar. And Carlos Baina, he was um, one of, like had been at Pixar for nine years. He'd worked on tons of the movies, including Wally e and others. And, just immediately kind of spoke the language and it just clicked on how you think about that like kind of magic and drive. And then he, we built out a team, uh, you know, with him as like a really kind of prominent kind of driver of this with different types of backgrounds and animators and character developers where um, we put these constraints on the team, but then got them to really try to create magic despite that. And we converged on this system that was at the overlap of character and the character AI that where if you imagine the dimensionality of emotions, happy, sad, angry, surprised, confused, uh, um, scared, like you think of these extreme emotions, um, uh, we almost like kind of put this challenge to kind of populate this library of responses on how do you show the extreme uh, response that like goes to the extreme spectrum on angry or mm -hmm. frustrated or whatever. And, and so that gave us a lot of intuition and learnings. And um, and then we started parameterizing them where it wasn't just a fixed recording, but they were parameterized and had randomness to them where you could have infinite permutations of happy and surprised and so forth. Um, and then we had a behavioral engine that took the context from the real world and would interpret it and then create kind of probability mappings on what sort of responses you would have that actually made sense. And so if Cosmo saw you for the first time in a day, um, he'd be really surprised and happy in the same way that the first time you walk in and like you're toddler sees you, they're so happy, but they're not going to be that happy for the entirety of your yeah. next two hours. But like you have this like spike in response, or if you leave him alone for too long, he gets bored and starts causing trouble and like nudging things off the table. Yeah. Um, or if you beat him in a game, 
um, the most enjoyable emotions are him getting frustrated and grumpy to a point where our our testers and our customers would be like, I had to let him win because I don't want him to be upset. And uh, and so you you (laughs) start to like create this feedback loop where you see how powerful those emotions are. And just to give you an example, something as simple as eye contact, um, you don't think about it in a movie, just like it kind of happens like, you know, camera angles and so forth. Um, But that's not really a prominent source of interaction. What happens when a physical character like Cosmo, when he makes eye contact with you, um, it built universal kind of connection, kids all the way through adults. Um, And it was truly universal. It was not like people stopped caring after 10, 12 years old. Um, And so uh, we started doing experiments and we found something as simple as increasing the amount of eye contact, Mm -hmm. like the amount of times in a minute that he'll look over for your approval to like kind of make eye contact just by, I think, doubling it, we increased the playtime engagement by 40%. Like you see these sort of like kind of interactions where you build that empathy. And and so we studied pets, we studied um, virtual characters. There's like uh, a lot of times actually dogs are uh, one of the perfect, most perfect uh, um, influencers behind these sort of interactions. And what we realized is that the games were not there to entertain you. The games were to create context to bring out the character. Mm-hmm. And if you think about the types of games that you know that you played, they were relatively simple, but they were always ones to create scenarios of either tension or winning or losing or surprise or whatever the case might be. And they were purely there to just like create context to where an emotion could feel intelligent and not random. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the end, it was all about the character. Um, so that, yeah, there's so many elements to play with here. So you said dogs. What lessons do we draw from cats who don't seem to give a damn about you? <laughs> is that just another character? Is it uh, another? It, it's, it's, it's just another character, and so you you could almost like in the early explorations, we thought that it would be really incredible if you had a diversity of characters where you almost help encourage which direction it goes, just like in a role playing game. Mm-hmm. Um, and you had uh, like think of like the you know seven dwarves sort of, and uh, um, and initially we even thought that it would be amazing if like you know they're like. You know, like their characters actually help them be have strengths and weaknesses, and some you know, like whatever they end up doing. Like some are scared, some are you know uh, arrogant, some are uh, you know super warm and like uh, kind of friendly. And in the end, we focused on one because it made it very clear that we, hey, we got to build out enough depth here because you're yeah. kind of trying to expand. It's almost like how long can you maintain a fiction that this character is alive mm-hmm. um, to where the person's explorations don't hit a boundary, um, which happens almost immediately with with typical toys mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know even with video games. Uh, how long can we create that immersive experience to where you expand the boundary? And one of the things we realized is that you're um, just way more forgiving when something uh, has a personality and it's physical. Um, that is the key uh, that unlocks... Uh, robotics interacting you know in the physical world more generally is that that uh the when you have a when you don't have a personality and you make a mistake as a robot the stupid robot make it made a mistake why is it not perfect when you have a character and you make a mistake you have empathy and it becomes endearing and you're way more forgiving and that was the key that was like i think goes far far beyond entertainment it uh, actually builds the depth of the personality the mistakes so let me ask the the movie her question then how and so cosmos seem, feels like the early days of something that will obviously be prevalent throughout society at a scale that we cannot even imagine my sense is it seems obvious that these kinds of characters will permeate society and that we'll be friends with them we'll be interacting with them in different ways in the way we i mean you don't think of it this way but 
when you play video games, they're kind they're often cold and impersonal. But but even then, uh, you think about role playing games, you become friends with certain characters in that game. Yeah. They're they don't remember much about you. They they they're they're just telling a story. It's it's yeah. exactly what you're saying. They they exist in that virtual world. But if they acknowledge that you exist in this physical world, if the characters in the game remember that you exist, that you like for me, like yeah. Lex, they understand that I'm a human being who has like hopes and dreams and so on. It seems like there's going to be a like billions if not trillions of cosmos in the world. So if we look at that future, there's several questions to ask. How intelligent does that future cosmo need to be to create fulfilling relationships like friendships? Yeah, it's a great question. And and part of it was a recognition that it's going to take time to get there because it has to be a lot more intelligent um, because what's good enough to be a magical experience for uh, you know an eight-year-old um, it's a higher bar to do that, be a like a pet in the home or to help with functional interface in an office environment or in a home or yeah. uh, and so forth. And so, uh, and the idea was that you build on that and you kind of get there and as technology becomes more prevalent and less expensive and so forth, you can start to kind of work up to it. Um, but, you know, you're absolutely right. At the end of the day, um, we almost equated it to how uh, the touchscreen created like this really novel interface to you know physical kind of devices like this. This is the extension of it where you have much richer physical interaction in the real world. This is this is the enabler for it, um, and it shows itself in a few kind of really obvious places. So just take something as simple as a voice assistant. Um, you will never, most people will never tolerate uh, an Alexa or a Google Home just starting a conversation um, proactively uh, when you weren't kind of expecting it because if it feels weird. It's like you were listening and like, and then now you're kind of, it, it feels intrusive. But if you had a character um, like a cat that touches you and gets your attention or a toddler, like you never think twice about it. And what we found really kind of immediately is that um, these types of characters like Cosmo and they would like roam around and kind of get your attention. And we had a future version that was always on um, kind of called Vector. Uh, people were way more forgiving. Um, and so you could initiate interaction in a way that is not acceptable for uh, for machines. And in general, um, you know, it, there's a lot of ways to customize it, but it makes people who are skeptical of technology much more comfortable with it. There was like there were a couple of really, really prominent examples of this. So when we launched in Europe, and so we were in, um, uh, I think like a do dozen countries, if I remember correctly, but like we were, we went pretty aggressively in, la uh, in launching in um, Germany and France and uh, in UK. And we were very worried in Europe because there's obviously like a really, a socially higher bar for privacy and sec you know security where you, you've heard about how many companies have had troubles on uh, uh, that might have, things that might've been okay in the US, but like are just not okay in Germany and France in particular. Um, and so we were worried about this because you have, um, you know, Cosmo, who's, um, uh, you know, in, in, our, in our future product vector, like where you have cameras, you have microphones, it's cloud connected, and like you're playing with kids and mm -hmm. like in, in these experiences. And you're like, this is like ripe to be like a nightmare if you're not careful. Yes. Um, and uh, and the journalists are like notoriously like really, really tough on, on these sort of things. Um, we were shocked and we prepared so much for what we would have to encounter. We were shocked in that not once from any journalists or customer did we have any complaints beyond like a really casual kind of question. And it was because the, of the character where um, 
when it conversation came up, um, it was almost like, well, of course he has to see and hear. How else is he going to be alive and interacting with you? Um, and it completely disarmed um, this like fear of technology that enabled this interaction to be much more fluid. Mm-hmm. And again, like entertainment was a proving ground, but that is like a you know there's like ingredients there that carry over to a lot of other uh, elements down the road. <laughs> That's hilarious. That we're a lot less concerned about privacy if the if the thing has value and charisma. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's with, true for all of human-to-human well, human interaction, too. It's an understanding of intent where, like, yeah. well, he's looking at me, he can see me. If he's yeah. not looking at me, he can't yeah. see me, right? So it's almost like uh, um, you're communicating intent, and, and with that intent, people were like kind of kind of a more understanding and calmer. And it's a it's interesting. And we just it was just the earliest kind of version of starting to experiment with this, but um it wasn't an enabler. And um and then and then you have like completely different dimensions where like you know kids with autism had like an incredible connection with Cosmo that just went beyond anything we'd ever seen. And we have like these just letters that we would receive from parents and we had some research projects kind of going on with some universities on studying this. But um there are like there's an interesting dimension there that got unlocked that just hadn't existed before um, that has these really interesting kind of links into society and uh, and a potential building block of future experiences. So if you look out into the future, do you think we will have beyond a particular game, you know, a companion like, uh, like Her, like the movie Her, or like a Cosmo that's kind of asks you how your day went? Too, right? Yeah. You know, like a friend. Yeah. Do, do you, how how many years away from that do you think we are? What's your intuition? Good question. So, I think the idea of a different type of character, like more closer to like kind of a pet style companionship, yes, will come yeah. way faster. Um, and there's a few reasons. One is like to to do something like in her. That's like all, effectively almost general AI, and the bar is so high that if you miss it by a bit, you hit the uncanny valley where it just becomes creepy and like and not um, not, not appealing. Um, because the closer you try to get to a human in form and interface and voice, the harder it becomes. Whereas you have way more flexibility on still landing a really great experience if you embrace the idea of a character, and that's why. Um, one of the other reasons why we didn't have a voice, uh, and also why, like a lot of video game characters, uh, like Sims, for example, does not have a voice when you uh, mm-hmm. when you think about it. It was uh, it wasn't just a cost savings, like for them. It was actually for all of these purposes. It was because when you have a voice, you immediately narrow down the appeal to some particular demographic or age range or mm-hmm. um, kind of style or gender. Uh, if you don't have a voice, people interpret what they want to interpret, um, and an eight-year-old might get a very different interpretation than a forty-year-old. Um, but you create a dynamic range, and so you just you can lean into these advantages much more um, in something that doesn't resemble a human. And so that'll come faster. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know when a human like that's just uh, still like Matt, just complete R and D at this point. The the chat interfaces are getting way more interesting and and richer, but it's still a long way to go to kind of pass the test of yeah. Well, let me like let's consider like let me play devil's advocate. So Google is a very large company that's servicing a, a it's creating a very com- compelling product that wants to provide a service to a lot of people. But let's go outside of that. You said characters. Yeah. It feels like, and you also said that it requires general intelligence to be a successful participant in a relationship, which could explain why I'm single. This this very, <laughs> but the. I, I honestly want to push back on that a little bit because I feel like, is it possible that if you're just good at playing a character, yeah. 
You're in, in a movie, there's a bunch of characters. Right. If you just understand what creates compelling characters, and then you you just are that character and you exist in the world and other people find you and they connect with you just like you do yeah. when you talk to somebody at a bar. I like this character. This character is kind of shady. I don't like them. You pick the ones that you like and you know maybe it's somebody that uh, reminds you of your fa father or mother. I don't know what it is, but the, the, the Freudian thing, but th there's some kind of connection that happens and that's, that, that's the Cosmo you connect to. That's yeah. the future Cosmo you connect. And that's, so, so I guess the statement I'm trying to make, is it possible to achieve a depth of friendship without solving general yeah, intelligence? I think so. And it's about intelligent kind of constraints, right? And right. just uh, you set expectations and constraints such that in the space that's left, you can be successful. And so you can do that by having a very focused domain that you can operate in. For example, you're a customer support agent for a particular product right. and you create intelligence and a good interface around that. Or... Uh, you know, kind of in the personal companionship side, you can't be everything to across the board. You you kind of solve those constraints, and I think uh, I think it's possible. My my worry is I like I right now I don't see anybody that has picked up on where kind of Cosmo left off, yes, and is pushing on it in the same way. And so I don't know if it's a sort of thing where similar to like how you know in dot com there were all these concepts that we considered like you know, that didn't work out or like failed or like were too early or whatnot. And then 20 years later, you have these like incredible successes on almost the same concept. Like it might be that sort of thing where like there's another pass at it that happens in five years or in 10 years. But um, it does feel like that appreciation of that, like the the, the three-legged stool, if you will, between like, you know, the hardware, the AI and the character, um, that balance, it's hard to, I'm not aware of, of any pro anywhere right now where like, that same kind of aggressive drive with the value on the character is uh, is happening, yeah. and so to me, just a prediction, exactly as you said, something that looks awfully a lot like Cosmo, not in the actual physical form, but in the three legged stool, something like that in some number of years will be a trillion dollar company. I don't understand. Like it's obvious to me yeah. that like character, not just as robotic companions, but in all our computers. They'll be there. It's like uh, Clippy was like two legs of that stool or something like that. Yeah. I mean, that, those are all different attempts. And what, what's really confusing to me is they, they're they born, these attempts, and they, they everybody gets excited, and for some reason they die. Mm -hmm. And then nobody else tries to pick it up. And then maybe a few years later, a, a crazy guy like you comes comes around with just enough brilliance and vision to create this thing, and is born. A lot of people love it. A lot of people get excited, but maybe the timing is not right yet. Yeah. And then, and then when the timing is right, it just blows yeah. up. It just keeps blowing up more and more until it just blows up. And I guess everything in, in the right. full span of human civilization collapses eventually. Yeah. But. <laughs> and that, that wouldn't surprise me at all. And like, what's going to be different in another five years or 10 years or whatnot? Physical component costs will continue cheaper. to come down uh, in price. And, you know, mobile devices and computation is going to become more and more prevalent as well as cloud as a, as a big tool uh, to offload cost. Um, AI is going to be a massive transformation compared to what we dealt with, uh, mm -hmm. where um, everything from voice understanding to um, uh, to just you know kind of a broader contextual uh, understanding and mapping of uh, of semantics and uh, understanding scenes and so forth. 
and then the character side will continue to kind of you know progress as well because that magic does exist it just exists in different forms um and you have just the brilliance of uh uh that's happening in animation and in, you know these other areas where um that is that was a big unlock in um you know, in film, obviously. Uh, and so I think, yeah, the pieces can reconnect and the building blocks are actually going to be way more impressive than they were five years ago. So so in 2019, uh, Anki, the company that created Cosmo, the company that you started had to shut down. How did you feel at that time? Yeah, it was tough. Uh, that was a really emotional stretch and it was really tough year like about a year ahead of that was actually a pretty brutal stretch because we were um kind of life or death on many many moments um just navigating these insane kind of just ups and downs and um barriers and the thing that made it like um like just, just rewinding a tiny bit like what you know what ended up being really challenging about it as a business where is um from a commercial standpoint and customer reception standpoint, there's a lot of things you could point to that were like you know pretty big successes, sold millions of units, uh, like you know got to like pretty serious revenue, like kind of close to 100 million annual revenue, um, uh, number one kind of product in kind of various categories, but it was pretty expensive. It ended up being very seasonal, where something like 85% of our volume was in Q4 um, because it was a you know a present and and it was expensive to market it and explain it and so forth. Um, and even though, though the volume was like really sizable and like the reviews were really fantastic, um, forecasting and planning for it and managing the cash operations was just brutal. Like it was absolutely brutal. You don't think about this when you're starting a company or when you have a few million in, you know, in, in revenue because it's just your biggest costs are kind of just your headcount and operations and everything's ahead of you. But we got to a point where, um, you know, you if you look at the entire year, you have to operate your company, pay all you know the people and so forth. You have to pay for the manufacturing, the marketing, and everything else to do your sales in mostly November, December, and then get paid in December, January by retailers. And those swings were pretty, um, were really rough um, and just made it like so difficult because the more successful you became, the more wild those swings became um, because you'd have to like spend, you know, tens of millions of dollars on inventory, tens of millions of dollars on marketing and tens of millions of dollars on payroll and everything else. And then the bigger dip and then you're waiting for the wild. Q4. And the yeah. And it's not a business that like is recurring kind of month to month and predictable. And it's just, and then you're walking in your forecast in July, um, you know, maybe August uh, if you're lucky. Um, and, uh, and it's also like very hit driven and seasonal where like you don't have the sort of continued uh, kind of slow growth like you do in some other uh, consumer electronics industries. And so before then, like hardware kind of like went out of favor too. And so you had Fitbit and GoPro drop from 10 billion revenue to 1 billion revenue and hardware companies are getting valued at like 1x revenue oftentimes, mm -hmm. um, which is tough, right? And so we effectively kind of got caught in the middle where we were trying to quickly evolve out of entertainment and move into some other categories but you can't let go of that business because like that's what you're valued on that's what you're raising money on um but there was no path to kind of pure profitability just there because it was you know such you know uh specific type of price points and so forth and so um we tried really hard to make that transition and um yeah we had a uh financing round that fell apart at the last second and effectively there was just no path to kind of get through that and get to the next kind of like holiday season. And so we ended up um, uh, selling some of the assets and kind of winding down the company. It was uh, 
it was brutal. Like we, I was very transparent with the company, like in the the team while we were going through it. Where actually, despite how challenging that period was, very few people left. I mean, like people loved the vision, the team, the culture, the like kind of chemistry and kind of what we were doing. There was just a huge amount of pride there. And then we wanted to see it through. And we felt like we had a shot to kind of get through these checkpoints. Um, we ended up, uh, and I mean, by brutal, I mean like literally like days of cash, like three, four different times uh, runway, like in the year, you know, kind of before it, um, where you're like playing games of chicken on negotiating credit line timelines and like repayment uh, terms and how to get like a bridge loan from an investor. It's just yeah. like, level of stress that like is as hard as things might be anywhere else. Like mm-hmm. it, you'll never come, you know, come close to that where you feel that like responsibility for, you know, 200 plus people. Right. Um, and so we were very transparent during our fundraise on who we're talking to, the challenges um, that we have, how it's going and when things are going well, when things were tough. Um, and so it wasn't a complete shock when it happened, but it was just very emotional where like I, you know, like, you know, when we announced it finally that like, um, you know, we've, you know, basically we're just like watching kind of like, you know, the runway and trying to kind of time it. And when we realized that like we didn't have any more outs, we wanted to like kind of wind it down, make sure that it was like clean and, you know, we could like kind of take care of people the best we could. But yeah, like broke down crying at all, you know, hands and somebody else had to step in for a bit. And like, it was just very, very emotional. But the beautiful part is like afterwards, like everybody stayed at the office to like two, three in the morning, just like drinking and hanging out and telling stories and celebrating. And it was just like, one of the best, uh, for many people, it was like the best kind of work experience that they had. And there was a lot of pride in what we did. And there wasn't anything obvious that we could point to that like, hey, if only we had done that different, things would have been completely different. It was just like the physics didn't line up. Uh, and uh, um, But the experience was pretty uh, incredible, but it was hard. Like it was, uh, it had this feeling that there was just like incredible beauty in both the technology and products and the team that, um uh, you know, there's there's a lot there that, like, in the you know right context, could have been uh, pretty incredible. But it was um, emotional. Just yeah, just thinking. I mean, just looking at this company, like you said, uh, product and technology, but the vision, the implementation, you got the cost down very low, yeah. and the the compelling, the nature of the product was great so many robotics companies failed at this at they the, the robot was too expensive it didn't have the personality it didn't really provide any value like a sufficient value to justify the price so like you, you succeeded where basically every single other robotics company or most of them that are like going the category of social robotics have kind of failed and i mean it, it's um it's it's quite tragic i remember uh reading that. I'm not sure if I talked to you before that happened or not, but I remember, you know, I'm distant from this. I remember being heartbroken reading that because like, if, if Cosmo is not going to succeed, what is going to succeed? Cause that yeah. to me was incredible. Like it, it, it was an incredible idea. Cost is down the minimum, the, 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 it's just like the most minimal design in physical form that you could do. It's really compelling. The balance of games, so it's, it's, a, it's a fun toy. It's a great gift for all kinds of age groups, right? Yeah. It's just, it's, it's compelling in every single way. And it seemed like uh, it was a, a huge success and it, it, it failing was, I don't know, there was heartbreak on many levels for me just as an external observer 
is I was thinking, how hard is it to run a business? That's that's what I was thinking. Oh, like, if this failed, so... this must have failed because uh, it's obviously not like, yeah, it's it's business. Yeah, maybe maybe it's some aspect of the manufacturing and so on. But yeah. I'm now realizing it's also not just that. It's yeah, uh, and, uh, sales, and marketing, all. Oh, those. it's everything, right? Like, how do you explain something that's like a new category to people yeah. that like have all these predispositions? And so, like. Uh, you know, it, it it had some of the hardest elements of, if you were to pick a business, it had the, some of the hardest uh, um, customer dynamics because, like, to sell a hundred fifty dollar product, you got to convince both the child to want it and the parents to agree that it's valuable. So you're having like this dual prong marketing challenge. You have manufacturing. You have like really high precision on the components that you need. You have the AI challenges. So there were a lot of tough elements, but is this feeling where like it was just really great alignment of unique strength across kind of like all these different areas, just an incredible, like, you know, kind of character and animation team between this, like Carlos and there's like a character director day that came on board and like, you know, really great people there, the AI side, the, um, uh, the manufacturing, the, you know, where, um, like never missing a launch. Right. And actually, you know, he kind of hit that quality. It was, um, yeah, it was, it was heartbreaking, but, uh, Here's one neat thing is like we had, we had so much like fan mail from kind of kids and par parents <laughs> like I actually like there was a bunch that collected in the end yeah that um I actually saved and like I never it was too emotional to open it and I still haven't opened it um and so I actually have this giant envelope of like a stack this much of like letters from you know kids and families just like every you know permutation permutation you can imagine and so planning to kind of uh, I don't know maybe like a five year you know five year to eight, some year reunion just inviting everybody over and we'll just like kind of dig into it and um, kind of bring back some memories but um, it's, you know good impact and uh, um, well I, I think there will be companies uh, maybe Waymo and uh, Google will be somehow involved that will carry this flag forward and will uh, will make you proud whether you're involved or not. I think this is one of the greatest robotics companies in the history of robotics. So you should be proud. It's still tragic to know that, you know, because you read all the stories of Apple and uh, and uh, let's see, SpaceX and like companies that were just on the verge of failure several times through that story. And they just, it's almost like a roll of the dice, yeah. they succeeded. And here's yeah. a roll of the dice that just happened to go and that's the appreciation that like when you really like talk to a lot of the you know founders, like everybody goes through those moments. And sometimes it really is a matter of like, you know, timing, a little bit of luck. Like some things are just out of your control. And um uh and you you get a much deeper appreciation for um just the dimensionality of of that challenge. But um the great thing is, is that like a lot of the team actually like stayed together, and so um, there were actually uh, you know a couple of companies that we where we kind of kept big chunks of the team together, and we actually kind of helped align this, uh, mm -hmm. um, you know, to to help people out as well. Um, and one of them was Waymo, where uh, a majority of the AI and robotics team mm -hmm. actually had the exact background uh, that you would look for in like kind of AV space, and it was mm -hmm. a space that a lot of us like. You know, we're you know worked on in grad school. We're always passionate about, and ended up. Uh, I don't know, maybe the time you know ser serendipitous timings from another perspective, where like uh, um, kind of landed in a really unique um, circumstance. It's actually been quite exciting too. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to ask you just your thoughts. Uh, Cosmos still lives on under Dream Labs. I, I think uh, yeah. is that. Are you tracking the progress there, or is it too much pain? <laughs> uh, is it? Yeah. Are you? Is that something that you're excited to see where that goes? 
So keeping an eye on it, of course, just out of your curiosity and obviously just kind of care for product line, I think um, it's deceptive how complex it is to manufacture and evolve that product line um, and the amount of experiences that are required to complete the picture and be able to move that forward. And I think that's going to make it pretty hard to do something really substantial with it. It would be cool if like even the product in the way it was, was able to be manufactured again. That would just the current goal, I suppose. Yeah, which would be neat. Um, But uh, it's, I I think uh, it was, it's deceptive how tricky that is on like everything from the quality control, the details and, um, and then like technology changes that forces you to Rick, reinvent and update certain things. Um, so uh, I haven't been super close to it, but just kind of keeping an eye on it. Um, yeah, it's really interesting how, how it's deceptively difficult, just as you're saying. Yeah. For example, um, uh, those same folks, uh, and I've spoken with them, they're, they part, partnered up with Rick and Morty uh, creators to uh, to do the Butter Robot, yeah. which I, I love the idea. I, I just recently, I, I kind of half-assed watched Rick and Morty previously but now i just watched like the first season it's such a brilliant show i I, like i did not understand how brilliant that show is and obviously i think in season one is where the butter robot comes along for just a few minutes or whatever but i just fell in love with the butter robot the sort of the that particular character just like you said there's characters you can create personalities you can create and that particular a robot who's doing a particular task realizes you know this like realize ask the existential question this the myth of sisyphus question that uh camus writes about it's like th- is this all there is is he moves butter but you know <laughs> that realization yeah. that's a be- that's a beautiful little realization for a robot that i'm my purpose is very limited, limited to this particular yeah. task <laughs> it's a be- it's it's humor of course it's darkness it's a beautiful mix but so they want to release that butter robot but something tells me that to do the the same depth of personality as cosmo had the same richness it would be on the manufacturing on the ai on the storytelling on the design it's going to be very very difficult it could be a cool sort of uh toy for rick and morty fans but to create the same depth of existential angst yeah that the butter robot symbolizes is, is is really that's the brave effort you succeeded at with cosmo but it's not easy it's no, really it's difficult. Not easy. and you can fail on almost any one of the kind of dimensions and like uh and yeah it takes you know uh, yeah unique convergence of a lot of different skill sets to to try to pull that off yeah, yeah. on this topic let me ask you for some advice because uh as i've been watching rick and morty I, I told myself I have to build the butter robot just as a hobby project. And so uh, I got a nice platform for it with treads and, and there's a yeah. camera that moves up and down and so on. Yeah. Um, I'll probably paint it. Uh, but the question I'd, I'd like to ask, there's obvious technical questions I'm fine with, communication, the personality, storytelling, all those kinds of things. Um, I think I understand the process of that, but how do you know when you got it right. So with, with Cosmo, how did you know this is great? Like, or mm, something is off. Like, yeah, is this brainstorming with the team? Do you know it when you see it? Is it like love at first sight? It's like, this is right. Or like, I guess if we think of it as an optimization space, 
is there uncanny valley where you're like this is not right or this is right or are a lot of characters right yeah we stayed away from uncanny valley just by having such a different what like mapping where it didn't try to look like a dog or a human or anything like that and so uh you avoided having like a weird pseudo similarity but not quite hitting the mark um, but you could like just fall flat where just like a personality or a character, you know, character emotion just didn't feel right. And so it actually mirrored very closely to kind of the iterations that a character director of Pixar would have where you're running through it and you can virtually kind of like see what it'll look like. We, we created a plugin to where we actually used like, like Maya, the simul, you know, the <laughs> animation tools. And then we created a plugin that perfectly ma matched it nice. uh, to the physical one. And so you could like test it out virtually and then push a button and see it physically play out. And there's like subtle differences. And so you want to like make sure that that feedback loop is super easy mm -hmm. to be able to test it live. Um, and then sometimes like you would just feel it that it's right and intuitively know. And then you'd also do, we did user testing, mm -hmm. but it was very, very often that like the into, like if we found it magical, it would scale and be magical uh, more broadly. There were not too many cases where like, like we were pretty decent about not like getting to it, you know, geeking out or getting too attached to something that was super unique to us. Um, but trying to kind of like, you know, put a customer hat on and does it truly kind of feel magical? And so mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, it just gave a lot of um, autonomy to the character team to really think about the you know, character board and mood boards and storyboards and like what's the background of this character and how would they react? Um, and they went through a process that's actually pretty familiar, but now had to operate under these unique constraints. Um, but the moment where it felt right um, kind of took a fairly similar journey than like a, as a character in an animated film, actually. It's quite cool. Well, the, the thing that's really important to me, and I wonder if it's possible, well, I hope it's possible, pretty sure it's possible, is for me, even though I know how it works, to make sure there's sufficient randomness in the process. Yeah. Uh, probably because it would be machine learning based that I'm surprised that I don't, I'm surprised by certain reactions. Uh, I'm yeah. surprised by certain communication. Maybe that's in a form of a question. Um, were you surprised by certain things Cosmo did, like certain interactions? Yeah, we made it intentionally like uh, so that there would be some surprise then like, a decent amount of variability in how he'd respond in certain circumstances. And so in the end, like it's, um, this is, this isn't general AI. This is a giant like spectrum and library of like parameterized kind of emotional responses and an emotional engine that would like kind of map your current state of the game, your emotions, the world, the people are playing with you all so forth to what's happening. Um, but we could make it feel spontaneous by creating enough diversity uh and randomness uh but still within the bounds of what felt felt like very realistic um to make that work and then what was really neat is that we could get statistics on how much of that space we were saturating um and then add more animations and more diversity in the places that would get hit more often so that you stay ahead of the um you know the the curve and maximize the uh the chance that it, it stays feeling alive um and so but then when you like combine it like the permutations and kind of like the combinations of emotions stitched together sometimes surprised us because you see them in isolation. But when you actually see them and you see them live, you know, relative mm -hmm. to some event that happened in the game or whatnot, like it was kind of cool to see the combination of the two. And, um, uh, and not too different in other robotics applications where like you get, you get so used to thinking about like the modules of a system and mm -hmm. how things progress through a tech stack mm -hmm. that 
the real magic is when all the pieces come together and you start getting the right emergent behavior um, in a way that's easy to lose when you just kind of go too deep into mm -hmm. any one piece of it. Yeah, when the system is sufficiently complex, there is something like emergent behavior and that's where the magic is. You, as a human being, you can still appreciate the beauty of that magic of yeah. the fine, at the system level. First of all, thank you for humoring me on this. Uh, it's really, really uh, fascinating. I think a lot of people would love this. I, I'd love to just, one last thing on the butter robot, I promise. <laughs> In terms of uh, speech. Yeah. Cosmo is able to communicate so much with just movement and face. Do you think speech is too much of a degree of freedom? Like speech, a feature or a bug of uh, deep uh, interaction, or emotional interaction? Yeah. For a product, it's too deep right now. It's just not real. Uh, it would immediately break the fiction because the yeah. state of the art is just not good enough. Um, and uh, and that's on top of just narrowing down the demographic where like the way you speak to an adult versus the way you speak to a child is very yeah. different. Um, yet a dog is able to appeal to everybody. Um, and so right now there is no speech system that is like rich enough and, and subtly real realistic enough to feel appropriate. Um, and so we very, very quickly kind of like moved away from it. Now, speech understanding is a different matter where understanding intent, that's a really mm -hmm. valuable input. Um, but giving it back requires like a you know way way higher bar um, given kind of where today's um, uh, world is, and so uh, that realization that you can do surprisingly much with uh, either no speech or kind of tonal like the way you know Wally R two D two and kind of other characters are able to, um, it's uh, quite powerful and it generalizes um, across cultures and across ages really really well. I think we're going to be in that world for a little while where it's still very much an unsolved problem on how to like make something. It touches on the uncanny valley thing. So if you have legs and you're a big humanoid looking thing, you have very different expectations and a much narrower degree of what's going to be acceptable by mm -hmm. society than if you're a uh, you know, robot like uh, like Cosmo or Wally and you can, or some other form where you can kind of like reinvent the, the character. Speech has that same property where speech is so well understood um, in terms of expectations by humans that you have far less flexibility on how to deviate from that and, and lean into your strengths and avoid weaknesses. But I wonder if there is, obviously there's certain kinds of speech that uh, activates the uncanny valley and breaks the illusion faster. So. I guess my intuition is we will solve certain, we would be able to create some speech-based personalities yeah. sooner than others. So for example, I could, I could think of a robot that doesn't know English and is learning English, right? Yeah, yeah. Those kinds of personalities. A fiction where you're like, uh, you're intentionally kind of like getting a toddler level of uh, yeah. speech. So that, that's exactly right. So you can have like, uh, tie it into the experience where uh, it is a more limited character or you embrace the lack of emotions as part or the lack of, sorry, dynamic range in the right. speech kind of capabilities, emotions as like part of the character itself. And you've that's, seen that in like kind of fictional characters as well. Yeah. Um, but that's why uh, this podcast works. And <laughs> yeah, and like, and you kind of had that with like, um, I don't know, I guess like, you know, data and some of the other, you know, yeah, ones, exactly. but like, um, but yeah, so you have to, and that becomes a constraint that lets you meet the bar. Um, See, I, I honestly think like also if you add uh, drunk and angry, 
that gives you more constraints that allow you to be uh, dumber from an NLP perspective. <laughs> like there's certain aspects. So if you modify human behavior, like uh, so, so, so forget the sort of artificial thing where you don't know English, toddler thing. We, if you just look at the full range of humans, I think we there's certain situations where we put up with a like lower level of intelligence in our communication. Like if somebody's drunk, we understand the situ that they're probably under the influence. Like we understand that they're not going to be making any sense. Anger is another one like that. I'm sure there's a lot of other kind of situations the like high, this. Yeah. Maybe, uh, yeah, again, language, loss in translation, that kind of stuff that I think if you if you play with that, uh, what is it, the Ukrainian boy that passed the touring test, you know, play with those ideas. I think that's really interesting. And then you can create compelling characters. But you're right, that's a dangerous sort of road to walk because uh, you're adding degrees of freedom that can get you in trouble. Yeah, and that's why, like, you have these um, big pushes that, like, for most of the last decade plus, like, where you'd have, like, full, like, hu human replicas of robots, really being down to, like, skin and, like, yeah. kind of in some places. Um, I'm... I'm my, my 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 personal feeling is like man like that's not the direction that's most fruitful right now right. um uh, beautiful art yeah right? it's not in terms of a uh, uh rich deep fulfilling experience yeah you're right yeah and uh, away creating a minefield of potential places to feel off uh, yeah. uh and then and then you're sidestepping where like the biggest kind of functional ai challenges are to actually have you know, kind of like really rich productivity that actually kind of justifies a, you know, kind of the higher price points. And that's, that's part of the challenges. It's like, yeah, like robots are going to get to like thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars and so forth. But you can imagine what sort of expectation of value that comes with it. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's where you want to be able to invest the the the, the time and, uh, and depth. And so going down the full human replica route um, creates a gigantic, uh, uh, distraction and really, really high bar that can end up sucking up so much of your resources. So it's weird to say, but you happen to be one of the greatest at this point roboticists ever because you created uh, this little guy. You were part obviously of a great team that created the, the little guy with a deep personality and are now switching to an entirely well, maybe not entirely, but a different, fascinating, impactful robotics problem, which is autonomous driving, and more specifically, the biggest version of autonomous driving, which is autonomous trucking. So you are at Waymo now. Can you give us a big picture overview? What is Waymo? What is Waymo Driver? What is Waymo One? Yeah. What is Waymo Via? Can you give an overview of the company and the vision behind the company? For sure. Waymo, by the way, is just it's been eye-opening on just how incredible that uh, the people and the talent is, and how in one company you almost have to create I don't know thirty companies worth of like <laughs> technology and capability to like kind of solve the full spectrum of it. So, um, yeah. So I've, I've been at Waymo since um, twenty nineteen, so about two and a half years. So Waymo is uh, focused on building what we call a driver, which is uh, creating the ability to have autonomous driving across different environments, vehicle platforms, domains, and use cases. Uh, you know, as you know, it got started in uh, uh, 2009. It was a lot, uh, almost like an immediate successor to the Grand Challenge and Urban Challenges that were like 
incredible uh, kind of catalyst for this whole space. Um, and so Google started this project and then eventually Waymo spun out. And so what Waymo is doing is creating uh, the systems, both you know, hardware, software, infrastructure, and everything that goes into it to enable and to commercialize autonomous driving. This hits on consumer transportation and ride sharing and kind of vehicles and urban environments. Um, and as you mentioned, it hits on autonomous trucking to, uh, to transport um, goods. So in a lot of ways, it's transporting people and transporting goods. Um, but at the end of the day, the underlying capabilities are required to do that are surprisingly better aligned than one might expect, um, where it's the fundamentals of um, of being able to understand the world around you, process it, make intelligent decisions, and prove that we are at a, a level of safety that enables uh, large-scale autonomy. So from a branding perspective, sort of uh, way more driver is the system that's irrespective of a particular uh, vehicle it's yeah. operating in there. It's, you have a set of sensors that perceive the world, can act in that world, and move this whatever the vehicle the is yeah, through vehicle the world. Platform. That's right. And so, in the same way that you have a driver's license and like your ability to drive is <laughs> yeah. tied to a particular make and model of a car, and of course, there's special licenses for other types yeah. of vehicles. But the fundamentals of a of a human driver very very largely carry over. And then there's uniquenesses related to a particular environment or domain or a particular um, vehicle type that kind of add some extra additive challenges. But that's exactly right. It's the underlying systems that enable uh, a, a physical vehicle without a human driver to uh, very successfully accomplish a task that previously um, wasn't possible um, mm -hmm. without 100% um, you know, hu human driving. Mm -hmm. And then there's Waymo One, which is the transporting people. That's right. From a brand perspective, and just in case we refer to it so people know, and then there's Waymo Via, which is the trucking component. Why Via, by the way? What is that? What is that? What's is it? Just like a cool sounding name that just yeah. Uh, like, is there is there an interesting story there? Just it is a pretty cool sounding name. It's a cool sounding name. I mean, when you think about it, it's just like well, we're gonna transport it via this and that. And oh, that. Cool. Like so, yeah, it's just cool. kind of like an allusion to um, the mechanics of transporting something. Yes, cool. Um, and uh, and it is a pretty good grouping. And the interesting thing is that even the groupings kind of blur where. Waymo One is like human transportation, and uh, there's a fully autonomous service in the Phoenix area that, like, every day is transporting people, and it's pretty incredible to like just see, you know see that operate at reasonably large scale and just kind of happen. And then on the Via side, it doesn't even have to be like long haul trucking is a like a, a major focus of uh, of ours, but down the road you can stitch together the vehicle transportation as well for local delivery. Um, also, and a lot of the requirements for local delivery overlap very heavily with consumer transportation. Um, obviously, uh, you know, given that you're operating on a lot of the same roads um, and uh, uh, and navigating the same safety challenges. And so, um, yeah, and Wavemo very much is a uh, you know, multi-product company that uh, has ambitions in both. They have different challenges and both are tremendous opportunities. But the cool thing is, is that there's a huge amount of leverage and this kind of core technology stack now gets pushed on by both sides. Mm -hmm. um, and that adds its own unique challenges. But the success case is that um, the challenges that you push on, um, they get leveraged across all platforms and all so domains. The, the, from an engineer perspective, the teams are integrated. It's a mix. So there's a huge amount of centralized kind of core teams that support all applications. And so you think of something like the hardware team that develops the lasers, the compute, yeah. integrates into vehicle platforms. This is an experience that carries over across um, you know any application that we'd have, and they ebb and flow with both. 
Then there's like really unique um, perception challenges, planning challenges, like other you know types of challenges where there's a huge amount of leverage on a core tech stack, but then there's like dedicated teams that think of how do you deal with a unique challenge. For example, um, an articulated trailer with varying loads that completely changes the physical dynamics of a vehicle. That doesn't exist on a car, but it becomes one of the most important um, kind of unique new challenges on a, on a truck. So what's the long-term dream of Waymo via uh, the autonomous trucking effort that Waymo is doing? Yeah, so we're starting with developing uh, L4 autonomy for um, Class 8 trucks. These are 53-foot trailers that uh, capture like a big, a pretty sizable percentage of the goods transportation in the country. Um, Long-term, the opportunity is obviously to expand to much more diverse types of vehicles, uh, types of goods transportation, and start to really expand in both the volume and the route feasibility that's possible. And so just like we did on the car side, you start with a single route with a very specific operating kind of domain and constraints that allow you to solve the problem. But then over time, you start to really try to push uh, against those boundaries and open up deeper feasibility across routes, across surface streets, across environmental conditions, across the type of goods that you carry, the versatility of those goods, and how little supervision is necessary to just start to scale this network. And long-term, there's actually, it's a pretty incredible enabler where, um, you know, today you have already a giant shortage of truck drivers. It's uh, over 80,000 truck driver shortage. That's expected to grow to hundreds of thousands in the years ahead. You have really, really quickly increasing demand from e-commerce and just just distribution of uh, where people are located. Um, you have one of the uh, deepest safety challenges of um, of any profession in the U.S. where um, there's a, a huge, huge, huge kind of challenge around fatigue and around kind of the, the long routes that are driven. Um, and even beyond kind of the cost and necessity of it, um, there are fundamental constraints built into our logistics network that are tied to um, the type of human constraints and regulatory constraints that are uh, tied to trucking today. For example, hour limits on how long a driver can be driving in a single day um, before they're uh, they're not allowed to drive anymore, which is a very important safety constraint. Mm-hmm. Um, what that does is it enforces limitations on how far jumps with a single driver could be and makes you very subject to availability of drivers, which influences where warehouses are built, which influences how goods are transported, which influences costs. And so um, you start to have an opportunity on everything from plugging into existing fleets and brokerages and the existing logistics network and just immediately start to have a huge opportunity to add value from a um, you know cost and driving fuel insurance and safety standpoint, all the way to completely reinventing the logistics network um, across the United States and enabling something completely different than what it looks like today. Yeah, I had uh, it'll be published before this, I had a great conversation with Steve Vicelli, who we talked about the manual driving, and he echoed many of the same things that you were talking about, but we talked about much of the the fascinating human stories of truck drivers. Uh, he was also was a truck driver for for, for a bit yeah. as, a, as a grad student to try to understand the depth of the problem. It's, he's a fascinating, fascinating lives. Uh, we have some drivers that have four million miles of lifetime driving experience. Yeah. It's uh, pretty incredible, and um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, learning from them. Like some of them are on the road for three hundred days a year. It's um, very di- unique type of lifestyle. So there's fascinating stuff there. Just like you said, there's a shortage of actually uh, people uh, truck drivers uh, taking the job. Counter to what this, I think, is publicly believed. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, so there's an excess of jobs and a shortage of people to take up those jobs. And just like you said, it's such a difficult problem. And these are experts at driving, at solving this particular problem. And it's fascinating to learn from them to understand, you know, how hard is this problem? And that's the question I want to ask you from a perception, from a robotics perspective. What's your sense of how difficult is, a, is autonomous trucking? Maybe you can comment on which scenarios are super difficult, which are more manageable. Is there is there a way to kind of convert into words how difficult the problem is? Yeah, it's a very good question. So there's, um, and as you can expect, it's a mix. Some things become a lot, uh, uh, a lot easier or at least more flexible. Um, some things are harder. And so, you know, on, on the things that are like uh, the tailwinds, the benefits, um, a big focus of automating trucking, especially initially, is really focusing on the long haul freeway stretch of it, mm -hmm. um, where that's where a majority of the value is captured. On a freeway, you have a lot more structure and a lot more consistency across freeways across the US. Um, compared to surface streets where you have a way higher dimensionality of what can happen, lack of structure, lack of consistency and variability across cities. So you can leverage that consistency to um, tackle, at least in that respect, a more constrained AI problem, which has some benefits to it. Um, you can itemize much more of the sort of things you might encounter and so forth. And so uh, those are benefits. Is there a canonical freeway and city we should be thinking about? like? Is there is there a standard thing that's brought up in conversation often? Like, here's a stretch of road. Um, what is it? Like when people talk about traveling across country, they'll talk about New York or San Francisco. Is that the route? Like, yeah. is is there a stretch of road that's like nice and clean? Yeah. And then there's like cities with difficulties in them that you kind of think of as the canonical problem to solve here. Right. Uh, so starting with the car side, um, well, Waymo very intentionally picked the Phoenix area mm -hmm. and the San Francisco area as a follow once we hit driverless, where yeah. when you think of consumer transportation and ride sharing you know, kind of economy, a big percentage of that market is captured in the densest cities in the United States. And so really pushing at and solving San Francisco becomes a really huge opportunity and uh, importance. And um, and you know, places one dot on kind of like the spectrum of like kind of complexity. Uh, the Phoenix area, starting with Chandler and then like kind of expanding more broadly in the Phoenix uh, metropolitan area, it's uh, I believe the fastest growing city in the U.S. It's a uh, kind of a higher medium sized city, but growing quickly, um, and still captures a really wide range of kind of like complexities. And so, getting to driverless there actually exposes you to a lot of the building blocks you need for the more complicated environments. And so. In a lot of ways, there's a thesis that if you start to kind of place a few of these kind of dots where San Francisco has these types of unique challenges, dense pedestrians, all this like complexity, mm -hmm. especially when you get into the downtown areas and so forth. And Phoenix has like a, a really interesting kind of spectrum of challenges. Maybe, you know, other ones like LA kind of add freeway focus and so forth. You start to kind of cover the full set of features that you might expect, and it becomes faster and faster if you have the right systems and the right organization to then open up the fifth city and the 10th city and the 20th city. On trucking, there's uh, similar properties where um, obviously there's uniquenesses in freeways when you get into really dense environments. And then uh, the real opportunity uh, to then you know get even more uh, value is to think about how you expand with like some of the service street challenges. But for example, right now we're looking, um, we have a big facility that we're uh, finishing building in Q1 in uh, Dallas area. 
um, that'll allow us to do testing from the Dallas area on routes like Dallas to Houston, Dallas to Phoenix, um, going out east. and Dallas to Austin? Uh, Austin, so that triangle... Um, Waymo should come to Austin. <laughs> well, Waymo, the car side wasn't Austin for a while. Yes, I know. Yeah. But come back. <laughs> yeah. But uh, trucking is actually, Texas is one of the best places to start uh, yeah. because of both volume, regulatory weather, there's a lot of benefits. Um, on trucking, a huge opportunity is Port of LA going east. So mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, a lot of the work is to start to stitch together a network and converge to Port of LA, where you have the biggest um, port in the United States. Um, and the amount of goods going east from there is pretty tremendous. And then obviously there's, you know, kind of channels everywhere. And then you have extra complexities as you get into like snow and inclement weather and so forth. But um, what's interesting about trucking is every single route segment that you add increases the value of the whole network. Mm -hmm. And so it has this kind of network effect and cumulative effect that's very unique. And so there's all these dimensions that we think about. Um, and so in a lot of ways, Dallas as a really unique hub that opens up a lot of options has become a really valuable lever. So the million questions I could ask you, first of all, you mentioned level four. For people who totally don't know, there's these levels of automation that uh, level four refers to uh, kind of the first step that you could recognize as fully autonomous driving. Level five is really fully autonomous driving. And level four is kind of fully autonomous driving. And then there are specific definitions depending on who you ask what that actually means. But for you, what does the level four mean? And you mentioned freeway. Let's say like there's three parts of long haul trucking. Maybe I'm wrong in this, but there's freeway driving, there's like truck stop, and then there's more urban-y type yeah. of area. So which of those do you want to tackle? Which of them do you include under level four? Like, well, how do you think about this problem? What do you focus on? Where's the biggest impact to be had in the short term? So. The goal is to, we got, we got to get to market as fast as we can, because the moment you get to market, you just learn so much and it influences everything that you do. And it is, um, uh, I mean, it's one of the experiences that carried over from before is that you add constraints, you figure out the right compromises, you do whatever it takes because getting to market like is so critical, right? And but here uh, with autonomous um, driving, you can get to market in so many different ways. That's too. right. And so one of the simplify, simplifications that we intentionally have put on is using what we call transfer hubs, where you can imagine depots uh, that are uh, at the entry points to metropolitan areas, like let's say Dallas, cool. like the hub that we're building, which does a few things that are very valuable. So from a first product standpoint, you can automate transfer hub to transfer hub, and that path from the transfer hub to the, you know, the full freeway route can be a very intentional single route that you can select for the features that you feel you want to handle at that point in time. Mm -hmm. now, and you build a hub specifically designed for autonomous, for, this, trucking. for autonomous trucking. And that's what's going to happen, actually. Like, and you get, you need to come out in January and check it out because it's going to be really cool. It's the not only is it our main operating um, headquarters for our fleet there, but it will be the first uh, fully ground up designed driverless hub for autonomous driverless that's autonomous awesome. trucks. In terms of where do they enter, where do they depart, how do you think about the flow of people, goods, everything? It's like it's quite cool and it's uh, really beautiful on how it's thought through. And so. Early on, it is totally reasonable to do the last five miles manually to get to the final kind of depot to avoid having to solve the general surface street problem, which mm -hmm. is obviously very complex. Now, when the time comes, 
and we are increasingly well, already we're pushing on some of this, but we will increasingly be pushing on surface street capabilities to build out the value chain to go all the way depot to depot instead of transfer hub to transfer hub. And we have probably the best advantages in the world because of all the Waymo experience mm-hmm. on surface streets. But that's not the highest ROI right now, where the highest ROI hub is to hub. hub to hub and get the routes going. And so when you ask what's L4, L4 can be applied to any domain, operating domain or scope, but it's effectively for the places where we say we're ready for autonomous operation. We are 100% operating uh, with, uh, through the as a self-driving truck with no uh, human behind the wheel. Mm-hmm. That is L4 autonomy. And it doesn't mean that you operate in every condition. It doesn't mean you operate on every road, but for a particularly well-defined area uh, operating conditions, routes, kind of domain, you are fully autonomous. And that's the difference between L4 and L5. And most people would agree that at least any time in the foreseeable future, L5 is just not even really worth thinking about because there's always going to be these extremes. Um, and so it's a race and a, almost like a game where you think of what is the sequence of expanded capabilities that create the most value and teach us the most and create this feedback loop where we're building out and unlocking more and more capability over time. I got to ask you, just curious. So first of all, I have to, when I'm allowed, visit the Dallas facility because it's super cool. It's like robot on the giving and the receiving end. It's the truck is a robot and the the hub is a robot. Yeah, it's got to be very robot friendly. So yeah, that's <laughs> great. <laughs> I will feel at home. Uh, the what's the sensor suite like on the hub? If you can just high level mention it, is that does the hub have like lidars and like is 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 the truck doing most of the intelligence or is the hub also intelligent? Yeah, so most of it will be the truck, and uh, everything is like connected. Like so we. Uh, we have our uh, servers where we know exactly where every truck is. We know exactly what's happening at a hub. And so you can imagine like a large backend system that over time starts to manage uh, timings, goods, delivery windows, all these sort of things. And so you don't actually uh, need to, um, uh, there might be special cases where that is valuable to equip some sensors um, in the hub, but a majority of the intelligence is going to be on the truck because um, whatever's relevant to the truck uh, relevant should be seen by the truck and can be relayed um, uh, remotely for any sort of kind of cognizance or decision making. But there, there's a distinct type of workflow where um, where do you check trucks? Where do you want them to enter? What if there's many operating at once? Where's the staging area to depart? How do you set up the flow of humans and human cars and traffic so that you minimize the interaction between humans and kind of self-driving trucks? Uh, And then how do you even intelligently select the locations of these transfer hubs that are both really great service locations for a metropolitan area? And there could be, over time, many of them for a metropolitan area, um, while at the same time leaning into... um, the path of least resistance to lean into your current capabilities and strengths so that you minimize the amount of work that's necessary to unlock the next kind of big bar. I have a million questions. So first, is the goal to have no human in the truck? The goal is to have no human in the truck. Now, of course, right now we're testing with expert operators and so forth, but um, the goal is to... Um, now, there might be circumstances where it makes sense to have a human or... Right. Uh, and and obviously, these trucks can also be manually driven. So sometimes like our we talk with our fleet partners about how um, you can buy a Waymo-equipped Daimler truck down the road and on the routes that are autonomous, it's autonomous. On the routes that are not, it's um, human-driven. Maybe there's L2 functionality that adds safety systems and so forth. But as soon as they become 
as soon as we expand in software, the availability of driverless routes, the hardware is forward compatible to just now start using them um, in uh, real time. And so you can imagine uh, this mixed use, but at the end of the day, the largest value proposition is where you're um, able to have no constraints on how you can operate this truck. Um, and it's 100% autonomous with nobody inside. Oh, that's amazing. So the let me ask on the logistics front, because you mentioned that also opportunity to revamp or for build from scratch some of the ideas around logistics. I don't want to throw too much shade, but from talking to Steve, my understanding is logistics is not perhaps as great as it could be in the current uh, trucking uh, environment. I'm not, maybe you can break down why, but there's probably competing companies. There's just a mess. Maybe some of it is literally just, it's old school. Like they, it's just like, it's not computer, it's not computerized. Like uh, truckers are almost like contractors. There, there's an independence, and there's not a nice interface where they can communicate where they're going, where they're at, all, all, you know, all those kinds of things. And so there, it just feels like there's so much opportunity to digitize everything to where you could optimize the use of human time, optimize the use of all kinds of resources. How much are you thinking about that problem? How fascinating is that problem? How difficult is it? How much opportunity is there to revolutionize the space of logistics in autonomous trucking, in trucking period? It's pretty fascinating. It's uh, This is one of the most motivating aspects of all this where like, yes, there's like a mountain of problems that are like you want to, you have to solve to get to like the first checkpoints and first driverless and so forth. Mm -hmm. And inevitably, like in a space like this, you plug in initially into the existing kind of system and start to kind of, you know, learn and iterate. But um, that opportunity is massive. And so, you know, a couple of the factors that um, play into it. So first of all, um, there's obviously just the physical constraints of driving time, driver availability. Some fleets have a 95% attrition rate, you know, right now because of just this demands and like, you know, kind of gaps in competition and so forth. And then it's also incredibly fragmented where you would be shocked at like when you when you look at industries like and you think of the top 10 players like the biggest fleets like the Walmarts and FedExes and so forth yeah. the percentage of the overall trucking market that's captured by the top 10 or 50 fleets is surprisingly small mm -hmm. um the average kind of uh truck operation is like a 1 to 5 truck you know family business um <laughs> and so and so there's just like a huge amount of like fragmentation which makes for um really interesting challenges in kind of stitching together through like bulletin boards and brokerages and f some people run their own fleets and and this world's kind of like evolving um but uh it is one of the less digitized um and optimized worlds that there is um and the part that is optimized is optimized to the constraints of today. Mm -hmm. um, and even within the constraints of today, this is a $900 billion industry in the US mm -hmm. um, and it's continuing to grow. Yeah, it feels like from a business perspective, if I were to predict that whilst trying to solve the autonomous trucking problem, Waymo might solve first the logistics problem. <laughs> like, cause that, that would already be a huge impact. Yeah. So on the way to solving autonomous trucking, the human driven, like there's so much opportunity to uh, significantly improve the human yeah. driven trucking, the timing, the logistics. So you use yeah. humans optimally. The handoffs, the like, yeah. you know, well, even that you, I mean, you get really ambitious, you start to expand this beyond like, how does the uh, fulfillment center work? And like, right. how does the transfer hub work? How does the warehouse work to, I mean, there's a lot of opportunities to start to automate these chains. And um, a lot of the inefficiency today is because like, you have a delay, like 
Port of LA has a bunch of uh, ships right now waiting outside of it because they can't dock because there's not enough uh, labor inside of the Port of LA. That means there's a big backlog of trucks, which means there's a big backlog of deliveries, which means the drivers aren't where they need to be. And so you have this like huge chain reaction and your feasibility of readjusting in this network is low because everything's tied to humans and manual kind of processes uh, or distrib distributed processes across a whole bunch of players. Um, and so one of the biggest enablers is, um, yes, we have to solve autonomous trucking first. And that, by the way, that's not like an overnight thing. That's decades of continued kind of expansion and work. But um, the first checkpoint in the first route is like is not that far off. But once you start enabling and you start to learn about how the constraints of autonomous trucking, which are very, very different than the constraints of human trucking, and again, strengths and weaknesses, um, how do you then start to leverage that and rethink a flow of goods um, more broadly. And this is where like the learnings of like really partnering with some of the largest fleets in the US um, and the sort of learnings that they have about the industry and the sort of needs that they have and what would change if you just like really broke this one constraint that like holds up the whole network? Mm -hmm. Or what if you enabled this other constraint? That actually drives the roadmap in a lot of ways because um, this is not like an all or nothing problem. It's, uh, you know, you start to kind of unlock more and more functionality over time, which functionality most enables this optimization ends up being kind of part of the discussion. But you're totally right. Like you fast forward to like, you know, five years, 10 years, uh, 15 years, and you think about like very generalized capability of automation and logistics, as well as the ability to like poke into how those handoffs work the efficiency goes far beyond just direct cost of today's like unit economics of a truck. They go towards reinventing the entire system yeah. um, in the same way that, uh, you know, you see, you know, these other industries that uh, like when you get to enough scale, you can really rethink um, how you build around your new set of capabilities, not the old set of capabilities. Yeah. Use the analogy metaphor or whatever that autonomous trucking is like email versus mail. And then with email, you're still doing the communication, but it opens up all kinds of varieties of communication that you, you didn't anticipate. That's right. Constraints are just completely different. Um, and yeah. yeah, there's a definitely a property of that here. Um, and we're also uh, still learning about it because there there is a lot of really um, fascinating and, and sometimes really elegant things that the industry has done where there's companies whose entire existence is around despite the constraints, optimizing as much as they can out of it. And those lessons do carry over. But it's an interesting kind of merger of worlds to think about, like, well, what if um, this was completely different? How would we approach it? Um, and the interesting thing is that um, for a really, really, really long time, it's actually going to be the merger between how to use autonomy and how to use humans mm -hmm. that leans into each each of their strengths. Yeah. And then we're back to Cosmo, <laughs> human-robot <laughs> interaction. So, and the interesting thing about Waymo is because there's the passenger vehicle, the the human, the transportation of humans and the transportation of goods, you could see over time they might kind of meld together more because you, you'll probably have like zero occupancy vehicles moving around. So you have transportation of goods for short distances and then for slightly longer distances and then slightly longer. And then there'll yeah. be this... Then you just see the difference between a passenger vehicle and a truck is just size, and you could have different sizes and all that kind of stuff. And at the core, you can have a way more driver that doesn't, as yeah. long as you have the same sensor right. suite, you can just think of it as one problem. And that's why over time, these do kind of converge, where in a lot of ways, a lot of the challenges we're solving are freeway driving, which yeah. are going to carry over very well to the vehicles, to the car side.
Um, but there are like then unique challenges like uh, you have a very different dynamics in your vehicle where you have to see much further out in order to have the proper like response time because you have an 80,000 pound fully loaded truck. Um, that's a very, very different type of braking profile than a, than a car. You have uh, really interesting kind of dynamic limits because of the trailer where you actually, it's very, very hard to like physically like flip a car or do something like physically, mm-hmm. like most risk in a car is from just collisions um yes. it's very hard to like in any normal operation to do something other than like you know unless you hit something to actually kind of like roll over or something on a truck you actually have to drive much closer to the physical bounds of the safety limits um but you actually have like r- real constraints because you could uh you know you could have uh really interesting interactions between the cabin and the trailer yes. there's something called jackknifing if you turn uh mm-hmm. you know too quickly um you have roll risks and so forth and so we spend a huge amount of time understanding those boundaries and those boundaries change based on the load that you have which is also an interesting difference and you have to propagate through the al- that through the algorithm so that you're leveraging your dynamic range but always staying within the safety bounds but understanding what those safety bounds are and so mm-hmm. we have this like really cool test facility where we like take it to the max and actually Imagine a truck with these giant training wheels on the back of the trailer, mm-hmm. and you're pushing it past its safety limits uh, yes. in order to like try to actually Understand see where what... it rolls. And so you ha- you you define this high dimensional boundary, mm-hmm. which then gets captured in software to stay safe and actually do the right thing. But uh, it's kind of fascinating the sort of uh, you know kind of challenges you have there. Um, but then all of these things drive really interesting challenges from perception to. Um, unique behavior prediction challenges and obviously in planner where you have to think about merging and creating gaps with a 53 foot trailer and so forth and then obviously the platform itself is very different where you have different numbers of sensors sometimes types of sensors and you also have unique blind spots that you have because of the trailer which you have to think about and so it's a really interesting spectrum and in the end um you try to capture these special cases in a way that is cleanly augmentations of the existing tech stack because a majority of what we're solving is actually generalizable to freeway driving um, and uh, different platforms. And over time, they all start to kind of merge, ideally, where the things that are unique are as as minimal as possible. And that's where you get the most leverage. And that's why Waymo can do, you know, take on $2 trillion opportunities um, and have be nowhere near 2x the cost or investment or size. In fact, it's much, much smaller than that um, because of the high degree of leverage. So what kind of sensor suite they can speak to that uh, that a long haul truck needs to have? LIDAR, vision, how many, what are we talking about here? Yeah, so it's um, more than the car. So very loosely you can think of as like 2X, but it varies um, depending on the sensor. And so we have like dozens of cameras, radar, and then multiple LIDAR as well. You'll see one difference where the cars have a central main sensor pod on the roof in the middle, and then a, some kind of hood uh, sensors for blind spots. Mm-hmm. The truck moves to two main sensor pods on the outsides where you would typically have the mirrors next to the driver. Mm-hmm. The, um, that effectively go as far out as possible, um, kind of up to, to the boundaries up, up of the front. Lens. Uh, kind of on the cabin, on not the cabin. all the way in the front, but yeah. like kind of where the, the mirrors for the driver would be. And so those are the main sensor pods. Mm-hmm. And the reason they're there is because if you had one in the middle, the trailer is higher than the cabin and you would Got be it. occluded with this like awkward wedge. Just too much occlusion. Too much occlusion. And so then you would add a lot of complexity to the software yeah. to make up for that and and just unnecessary complexity. There's so many 
probably fascinating design choices. It's really cool. Because you yeah. can probably bring up a ladder higher and have it in the center or something. You you could have all kinds of choices yeah. to make the decisions here yeah. that ultimately probably will define the industry. <laughs> right, but by having two on the side, there's actually multiple benefits. So one is like, um, you're just beyond the trailer, so you can see fully flush with the trailer, mm, nice. and so you eliminate most of your blind spot except yes. for right behind the trailer, um, which is which is great because now the software carries over really well, mm -hmm. and the same perception system you use on the car side, largely that architecture can carry over, um, and you can retrain some models and so forth, but you leverage it a lot. It also actually helps with redundancy, where mm -hmm. um, there's a really nice built-in redundancy for all the LiDAR cameras and radar, where you can afford to have any one of them fail, and you're still okay, and at scale, every one of them will fail. Um, right. And, and so, you will be able to detect when one of them fails because they don't, uh, because of the redundancy, they're giving you the data that's inconsistent with the rest of the That's right. And it's not just like they no longer give data. It could be like they're fouled or they stop giving data or the uh, well, some electrical thing gets cut or you know, part of your compute goes down. So what's neat is that like you have way more sensors, part of it is field of view and occlusions, part of it's redundancy, and then part of it is new use cases. So there's um, uh, new types of sensors uh, to optimize for long range and uh, kind of the, the the sensing horizon that we look for uh, on our vehicles um, that is unique to trucks because it actually is like kind of much like further out than um, than a car. Um, but a majority are actually reused across both cars and trucks. And so we use the same compute, the same uh, fundamental baseline sensors, cameras, uh, um, radar, um, IMUs. And so you get a great leverage from all of the infrastructure and the hardware development as a result. So what about cameras? What, what role does, so LiDAR is this rich set of information, has its strengths, um, has some weaknesses, camera, is a rich source of information that has some strengths, has its weaknesses. What role does LiDAR play? What role does vision um, cameras play in this in this beautiful problem of autonomous trucking? Uh, it is beautiful. There's like so much that comes together. Um, and, and how much, yeah. at, at which point do they come together? Yeah. So, so I'll start with LiDAR. So LiDAR has been like Waymo's, um, uh, one of Waymo's big strengths and advantages where uh, we developed our own LiDAR uh, in-house. We're many generations in, both in cost and functionality. It is um, uh, the best in, you know, in this, in this space. Which uh, generation? Because I know there's this, there's uh, this cool, I mean, I would love versions that are increasing. Uh, which version of the hardware stack is it at currently? Uh, uh, officially, fifth, publicly. Okay. Uh, so, uh, so some parts iterate more than others. I'm trying to remember on the sensor side. So, this the entire self-driving system, which includes sensors and compute, mm -hmm. is fifth generation. Yes. Um, I can't wait until there's like iPhone style like announcements yeah. for like new versions of the Waymo hardware. Yeah. Side. <laughs> well, we try to be careful because man, when you change the hardware, it takes a lot to like retrain the models and yes, uh, yes. and everything. So we just went through that and going from the Pacificas to the Jaguars. Mm -hmm. And so the Jaguars and then the trucks are, you know, have the same generation now. Um, but yeah, the LiDAR is, uh, it's incredible. And so Waymo has um, leaned into that as a strength. And so a lot of the near range perception system kind of that obviously kind of uh, carries over a lot from the car side uh, uses LiDAR as a very prominent kind of like primary sensor. Mm -hmm. But then obviously everything has its strengths and weaknesses. And so um, in the near range, uh, LiDAR is a gigantic advantage. Um, and it has its weaknesses on, you know, when it comes to occlusions in certain areas, rain and weather, like, you know, things like that. But it's an incredible sensor and it gives you incredible density, perfect location precision and consistency, which is a very valuable property. Um, 
to be able to uh, to kind of apply a Mel approach. Can, can you elaborate consistency? Yeah. When you have a camera, the position of the sun, the time of the day, uh, um, various it, of the it. properties can have a big impact, uh, whether there's glare, the field of view, things like that. Um, when uh, so consistent the signal uh, with, uh, yeah, it, it, in the face of a changing external environment, the signal. Yeah, daytime, is- nighttime. It's about 3D um, physical existence, in effect. Like you're, you're seeing beams of light that bounce physically bounce off of something and come back. Mm-hmm. And so whatever the conditional conditions are, like the shape of a human sensor reading from a human or from a car or from an animal, like you have um, a reliability there, which ends up being valuable for kind of like the long tail of challenges. Yeah. Now, LiDAR is the first sensor to drop off in terms of range, and ours has a really good range, but at the end of the day, um, it drops off. And so particularly for um, uh, for trucks, on top of the general redundancy that you want for near range with, and complements through cameras and radar for occlusions and for complementary information and so forth, when you get to long range, you have to be radar and, and camera primary because your LiDAR data will fundamentally drop off after a period of time, mm-hmm. and you have to be able to see um, kind of objects further out. Now, uh, cameras have... Uh, the the incredible range um, where you get a high high density high resolution camera you can get data you know well past a kilometer and it's like really um, potentially a huge value now the signal drops off the noise is higher detecting is harder classifying is harder and one that you may not think about localizing is harder because you can be off by like two meters and where something's located a kilometer away. And that's the difference between being on the shoulder and being in your lane. And so you have like interesting challenges there that you have to solve, which have a bunch of approaches that come into it. Um, radar is interesting because um, uh, uh, because it also has longer range than um, than lidar, uh, and it gives you speed information. So it becomes very very useful for dynamic information of traffic flow, uh, vehicle motions, animals, pedestrians, like uh, just things that might be um, useful signals. Um, and uh, it helps with weather conditions where radar actually penetrates weather conditions in a better way than um, other sensors. And so it's it's just, it's kind of interesting where we've kind of started to converge towards not thinking about a problem as a LIDAR problem or a camera problem or a radar problem, but it's a fusion problem where these are all like large scale ML problems where you put data into the system. And in many cases, you just look for the signals that might be present in the union of all of these and leave it to the system as much as possible to start to really identify how to um, how to extract that. And then there's places we have to intervene and actually um, include more. But um, no single sensor is in a great position to like really solve this problem and end without a huge extra challenge. That's fascinating. Um, there's a question that's probably still an open question: is at which point do you fuse them? Do, yeah. do you do you solve the perception problem for each sensor suite individually, the lidar suite and the camera suite, or do you do some kind uh, of heterogeneous fusion, or do you fuse at the very beginning? Um, what, what do you, right. is, is there a good answer, or at least an inkling of intuitions you can come? Yeah. Up? So people refer to this as like um, uh, early fusion or late fusion. Yeah. So late fusion might be that you have like. The, the camera pipeline, the LiDAR pipeline, and then you like fuse them and like when it gets to like final, you know, semantics and classification and tracking, you like kind of fuse them together and and figure out which one's best. Um, there's more and more evidence that um, uh, that early fusion is important. Um, and that is because uh, weight fusion does not allow you to pick up on the complementary strengths and weaknesses of the sensors. Um, weather's a great example where 
um, if you do early fusion, you have an incredibly hard problem for any single sensor in rain to solve that problem mm-hmm. um, because you have reflections from the lidar, um, you have uh, you know weird kind of noise from the camera, blah blah blah, right? But the combination of all of them can help you filter and help you get to the real signal that then gets you as close as possible to the original stack, um, and be much more fluid about the strengths and weaknesses where. Um, you know, your camera is much more susceptible to like kind of uh, fouling on the on the actual lens from you know like rain or random stuff. Whereas like you might be a little bit more resilient in other sensors. And so there's an element of logic that always happens late in the game. But that fusion early on, actually, especially as you move towards ML and large scale data driven approaches, just maximizes your ability to pull out the best signal you can out of each modality before you start making constraining decisions that end up being hard to unwind late in the stack. So how much of this is a machine learning problem? What role does ML, machine learning, play in this whole uh, problem of autonomous driving, autonomous trucking? Mm-hmm. It's um, massive, and it's increasing over time. You know, If you go back to um, you know, the grand challenge days in the early days of kind of AV development, um, there was ML, but it was not in like kind of the mass scale data style of ML. It was like uh, learning models, but in a more structured um, kind of way. And it was a lot of heuristic and search-based approaches and planning and so forth. You can make a lot of progress with these types of approaches um, kind of across the board, an almost deceptive amount of progress. We can get pretty far, but then you re- you start to really grind the further you get in some parts of the stack um, if you don't have an ability to absorb a massive amount of experience in a way that scales very sublinearly in terms of human labor and human attention. And so when you look at the stack, um, the perception side is probably the first to get really revolutionized by ML. And it goes back many years because ML for like computer vision and these types of approaches is, has, kind of took off, um, was a lot of the like early kind of push in, um, in deep learning. And so... There's always a debate on, you know, the spectrum between kind of like end-to-end ML, which, you know, is a little bit kind of like too far to how you architect it to where you have modules, but enough ability to think about long tail problems and so forth. But at the end of the day, um, you have big parts of the system that are very ML and data-driven, and we're increasingly moving that direction all the way across the board, including um, behavior where even when it's not like a gigantic ML problem, that covers like a giant swath end to end, more and more parts of the system have this property where you want to be able to put more data into it and it gets better. Um, and that has been one of the realizations is you drive tens of millions of miles and try to like solve new expansions of domains without regressing in your old ones. It becomes intractable for a human to approach that in the way that traditionally robotics has kind of approached some elements of the, of the tech stack. So are you trying to... Um create a data pipeline specifically for the trucking problem? Is this Is it, like how, how much leveraging of the autonomous driving is there in terms of data collection? Yeah. And how, how unique is the data required for the trucking yeah. problem? So we, uh, we we use all the same infrastructure. Um, so labeling workflows, ML workflows, everything. So that actually carries over quite well. Um, we heavily reuse the data even, mm-hmm. where almost every model that we have on a truck we started with the latest car model. Cool. And um, so, so it's almost like a good background model. Yeah. It's like you can think of like, despite the different domain and different numbers of sensors and position of sensors, there's a lot of signals that carry over across driving. Yeah. And so it's almost like pre-training and getting a big boost yeah. out of the gate where you can reduce the amount of data you need by a lot. 
Um, and it goes both ways, actually. And so we're increasingly thinking about our data st strategy on how we leverage both of these. Um, so you think about um, you know, how other agents react to a truck. Yeah, it's a little bit different, but the fundamentals are actually like, what will other vehicles in the road do? There's a lot of carryover that's possible. And in fact, um, just to give you an example, uh, we're constantly kind of like adding more data from the trucking side. But as of right now, um, when we think of our, like one of our models, behavior prediction for other um, agents on the road, like mm -hmm. vehicles, 85% um, of that data comes from cars. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of that 85% comes from surface streets um, because we just had so much of it and it was really valuable. Mm -hmm. And so we're adding in more and more, particularly in the areas where we need more data, but you get a huge boost out of the gate. Just all different visual characteristics of roads, lane markings, pedestrians, all that, that's still relevant. It's and, all still and relevant. And then just the fundamentals of how you know you detect the car does it really change that much, whether you're detecting it from a car or a truck? Um, the fundamentals of how a person will walk around your vehicle, is it, it'll change a little bit, but the basics, like there's a lot of signal in there that as a starting point to a network can actually be very valuable. Now, we do have some very unique challenges where there's a sparsity of events on a freeway. Um, the frequency of events happening on a freeway, whether it's you know interesting you know, objects in the road or incidents or or even like from a human benchmark, like how often does a human have an accident on a mm -hmm. freeway is far more sparse than on a surface street. And so that leads to really interesting data problems where uh, you can't just drive infinitely to encounter all the different permutations of things you might encounter. And so there you get into interesting uh, tools like structured testing and data collection, data augmentation, and so forth. And so there's really interesting kind of technical challenges that push some of the research um, that enables um, these new new suites of approaches. What role does simulation play? Really good question. So Waymo simulates about a thousand miles for every mile it drives. Um, mm -hmm. So you think of- In both, so across the board. Across the board, yeah. Uh, so you think of, for example, well, if we've driven you know over 20 million miles, that's over 20 billion miles in simulation. Wow. Now, how do you use simulation? Um, it's uh, multi-purpose. So, uh, you use it for basic development. So you want to do make sure you, you have regression prevention and protection of everything you're doing, right? Um, that That's an easy one. Um, when you encounter something interesting in the world, let's say there was an issue with how the vehicle behaved versus an ideal human. Um, you can play that back in simulation and start augmenting your system and seeing how you would have reacted to that scenario with this improvement or this new area. You can create scenarios that become part of your regression set after that point, mm -hmm. right? Um, then you start getting into like really, really like kind of hill climbing where um, you say, hey, I need to improve this system. I have these metrics that are really correlated with final performance. Um, how do I know how well I'm doing? Uh, operation, the actual physical driving is the least efficient form of mm -hmm. testing and it's expensive, it's time consuming. So grabbing a large scale uh, batch of historical data and simulating it to get a signal of over these last, or just random sample of 100,000 miles, how has this metric changed versus where we are today? You can do that far more efficiently in simulation than just driving with that new system on, on board, right? Um, and then you go all the way to the validation phase where to actually see your human relative safety of like how well are you performing on the car side or the trucking side relative to a human, um, a lot of that safety case is actually driven by uh, taking all of the physical operational driving, which probably includes a lot of interventions where like where the operate the driver took over just in case, um, and then you simulate those forward 
and see if would anything have happened? And in most cases, the answer is no, but you you can simulate it forward. And you can even start to do really interesting things where you add virtual agents to create harder environments. You can fuzz the locations of physical agents. You can muck with the scene and stress test the scenario from a whole bunch of different dimensions. And effectively, you're trying to like more efficiently sample this like infinite dimensional space, but try to encounter the problems as fast as possible. Because mm -hmm. what most people don't realize is the hardest problem in autonomous driving is actually the evaluation problem in many ways, not the actual autonomy problem. And so if you could, in theory, evaluate perfectly and instantaneously, you can solve that problem in a really fast feedback loop um, quite well. But the hardest part is being really smart about this suite of approaches on how can you get an accurate signal on how well you're doing as quickly as possible in a way that correlates to physical driving. Can you That's explain the, the evaluation yeah. problem? Which metric are you evaluating towards? Are we talking about safety or some, yeah. what are the performance metrics that we're talking about? So in the end, you care about end safety. Like that's in the end what keeps you for like, um, that's what's deceptive where uh, there's a lot of companies that have like a great demo. Um, the path from like a really great demo to being able to go driverless can be deceptively long even when that demo looks like it's driverless quality. And the difference is, is that the thing that keeps you from going driverless is not the stuff you encounter on a demo. It's the stuff that you encounter once in 100,000 miles or 500,000 miles. Yeah. And so that is at the root of what it what is most challenging about going driverless because any issue you encounter, you can go and fix it. But how do you know you didn't create five other issues that you haven't then encountered yet? So those learnings, like those were painful learnings in Waymo's history that Waymo went through and led to us then finally being able to go driverless in Phoenix and now are at the heart of how we develop. Um, evaluation is simultaneously evaluating final kind of end safety of how ready are you to go driverless, um, which may be as you know direct as what is your collision, human relative kind of collision rate uh, for all these types of scenarios and and uh, uh and severities mm -hmm. to make sure that you're better than a human bar, you know, by by a good amount. Um, but that's not actually the most useful for development. For development, it's much more kind of analog metrics that are part of the art of finding how what what are the properties of driving that give you a way quicker signal that's more sensitive than a collision that can correlate to the quality you care about and push the feedback loop to all of your development. A lot of these are, for example, comparisons to human drivers, mm -hmm. like manual drivers. And how do you how do you do relative to a human driver in various dimensions or various um, circumstances? Can I ask you a, a, a tricky question? So, if I brought you a truck, how would you test it? Okay, Alan Turing came along, and you said this one's can't tell if it's a human driver or yeah, a exactly. autonomous driver. Yeah, but not the human because. Because you know humans are flawed. It's but yeah, yeah. yeah. How do you actually know you're ready? Basically, yeah, like, yeah. and how do you know it's good yeah. enough? Um, yeah. And, and by the way, this is the reason why, like, um, Waymo released a safety framework for the car side because, like, one, it sets the bar so nobody cuts below it um, and does something bad for the field that and that causes an accident. And two, it's to start the conversation on on like framing what does this need to look like. Same thing we'll, we'll end up doing for the trucking side. Um, there, it ends up being. Um, Different different uh, portfolio of approaches. There's easy things like, are you compliant with all these like fundamental rules of the road? Like you never drive above the speed limit. That's actually pretty easy. Like you can fundamentally prove that it's either impossible to violate that rule or that in these like you can um, 
itemize the scenarios where that comes up and you can do a test and show that you, you know, you pass that test and therefore you can handle that scenario. Mm -hmm. And so those are like traditional structured testing kind of system engineering approaches where you can just quantify, like uh, fault rates is another example where when something fails, how do you deal with it? You're not going to drive and randomly wait for it to fail. You're going to force a failure and make sure that you can handle it in mm -hmm. closed courses and simulation or on the road. Um, and, uh, and run through all the permutations of failures, which you can oftentimes, for some parts of the system, itemize, like hardware. Mm -hmm. um, the hardest part is behavioral, where you have just infinite situations that could, in theory, happen. Um, and you want to figure out the, the combinations of approaches that, you know, that can work there. You can probably pass the Turing test pretty quickly, even if you're not like completely ready for driverless, because the events that are really kind of like hard will not happen that often. Just to give you a perspective, um, uh, a human has a serious accident on a freeway, uh, like a truck driver on a freeway has, uh, there's a, a serious event happens once every 1.3 million miles. Mm -hmm. And something that actually has like a really serious injury is 28 million miles. And so those are really rare. And so you could have a driver that looks like it's ready to go, but you have no signal on, on what happens there. And so that's where you start to get creative on combinations of, sampling and statistical arguments, focused structured arguments where you can kind of si uh, simulate those scenarios and show that you can handle them, and metrics that are correlated with what you care about, but you can measure much more quickly and get to a right answer. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what makes it pretty hard. And in the end, um, you end up borrowing a lot of properties um, from uh, aerospace and like mm -hmm. space shuttles and so forth, where you don't get the chance to launch it a million times just to say you're ready because it's too expensive to fail. Um, and so you go through a huge amount of kind of structured approaches in order to validate it. And then by by thoroughness, you can make a strong argument that you're ready to go. This is actually a harder problem in a lot of ways, though, because you can think of a space shuttle as um, getting to a fixed point and then you kind of like, or an airplane, and you like freeze the software and then you like prove it and you're good to go. Here you have to get to a driverless quality bar, but then continue to aggressively change the software even while you're driverless. And so, but, and also the full range of environment that you there's there's an external environment with a shuttle, it's, you're basically testing the like the systems, the internal stuff. Yeah. Uh, and you have a lot of control in the external stuff. Yeah, and the hard part is how do you know you didn't get worse in something that you just changed? Yes, um, sure. And so, uh, so in a lot of ways, like um, the Turing test starts to fail pretty quickly because you start to feel driverless quality um, pretty early in that curve. Um, if you think about it, right, like in most um, most uh, kind of you know really good AV demos, maybe you'll sit there for thirty minutes, right? Yeah. Um, so you've driven you know fifteen miles or something like that. Um, to go driverless, uh, like what's the sort of rate of issues that you need to have? You won't even encounter. So, so let's try something different then. Let's try a different version of the Turing test, which is like an IQ test. Uh -huh. So there's these difficult questions of increasing difficulty. They're very, they're, they're designed. You don't know them ahead of time. Nobody knows the answer to them. Right. And so is it possible to in the future orchestrate yeah. basically really difficult course almost of like yeah, yeah that maybe change every year 
and that represent if you can pass these it they don't necessarily represent the full spectrum that's it yeah uh, they but, won't be conclusive but you can at least get a really quick read and filter yeah um, like you're able to yeah because you didn't know them ahead of time like i don't know uh, yeah. pro probably <laughs> like construction zones uh failures or or driving yeah. anywhere in russia yeah like, yeah exactly. snow <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, weather um cut-ins, yes. uh, dense traffic, kind of merging lane closures, yes, yeah. Merging, uh, yeah. animal foreign objects on a road that pop out on short notice, mm -hmm. mechanical failures, sensor braking, tire popped, weird behaviors by other vehicles, like a hard brake, something reckless that they've done, fouling of sensors like bugs or birds, you know, yeah. poop or something. So like, but yeah, like you have these like kind of like extreme, uh, conditions where like you have a nasty construction zone where everything shuts down and you have to like go, you know get pulled to the other side of the freeway with a temporary lane like that right those are sort of conditions where we do that to ourselves right we itemize everything that could possibly happen to give you a starting point to how to think about what you need to develop and at the end of the day there's no substitute for real miles mm -hmm. like if you think of traditional ml like you know how there's like a validation set where you hold out some data and uh like Real world driving is the ultimate validation set. That's the, right. in the end, like the cleanest signal. Um, but you can do a really good job on creating an obstacle course. And you're absolutely right. Like at the end, um, if there was such a thing as automating uh, and kind of a readiness, um, it would be these extreme conditions, like a red light runner, right? A um, really reckless pedestrian that's jaywalking, a cyclist that, you know, makes like a really awkward maneuver. That's actually what keeps you from going driverless. Like in the end, that is the long tail. Yeah, and it's interesting to think about that. That to me is the Turing test. Turing test means a lot of things, but to me, in driving, the Turing test is exactly this validation set that is handcrafted. There's a I don't know if you know him. There's a guy named Francois Chollet. He um, he design. He thinks about like how to design a test for general intelligence. He designs these IQ tests yeah. for machines, and the validation set for him is handcrafted. Yeah. And that it requires like human genius or ingenuity to create a really good test. Yeah. And you hold, you truly hold it out. It's an interesting perspective on the validation set, which is like, make that as hard as possible. Right. Not a generic representation of the data, but this is the hardest. The hardest thing. stuff. Yeah. You know, it's like go, like you'll never fully itemize like all the world states that you'll, you'll expand. And so you have to come up with different approaches. And this is where you start hitting the struggles of ML, where ML is fantastic at optimizing the average case. It's a really unique craft to think about how you deal with the worst case, which is what we care about in, in the AV space, um, when using an ML system on something that, that occurs like super infrequently. Um, so like you don't care about the worst case really on ads, because if you miss a few, it's not a big deal. Mm -hmm. But you do care about it on the driving side, and so, um, and so typically, like you'll never fully enumerate the world, and so you have to take a step back and abstract away what are the signals that you care about, and the properties of a driver that correlate to defensive driving and si avoiding nasty situations. That um, even though you'll always be surprised by things you'll encounter, you feel good about your ability to generalize from what you've learned. All right, let me ask you a tricky question. So to me, the two companies that are building at scale some of the most incredible robots ever built is Waymo and Tesla. Mm -hmm. So there's very distinct approaches, technically, philosophically, in these two systems. Let me ask you to play sort of devil's advocate and then 
the devil's advocate to the devil's advocate. It's it's a bit of a race. Of course, everyone can win. Um, but if Waymo wins this race to level four, uh, which why would they win? What aspect of the approach do you think would be the winning aspect? And if Tesla wins, why would they win? And uh, which aspect of their approach would be the reason? Just just building some intuition, almost not from a business perspective, from any of yeah. that, just technically. Yeah. I, yeah, and we could summarize, I think, maybe you can correct me, what one of the more distinct aspects is uh, Waymo has a richer suite of sensors as LiDAR and vision. Tesla now removed radar, they do vision only. Tesla has a larger fleet of vehicles operated by humans. So it's already deployed out in the field mm -hmm. in it's uh, larger, uh, what do you call it? Uh, operational domain. Yep. And then Waymo is more focused on a specific domain and growing it with fewer vehicles. So yep. that's the, both are fascinating approaches. Both are, I think there's a lot of brilliant ideas. Nobody knows the answer. So I, I'd love to get your comments on this lay of the land. Yeah, for sure. So maybe I'll, um, I'll start with Waymo. And, and you're right, like both incredible companies and just a gigantic respect to like, everything Tesla's accomplished and uh, how they pushed the, the field forward as well. So on the Waymo side, there is a fundamental advantage in the fact that it is focused and geared towards L4 from the very beginning. We've customized the sensor suite for it, the hardware, the compute, the infrastructure, the tech stack, and all of the investment inside the company. Um, that's deceptively important because there's like a giant spectrum of problems you have to solve in order to like really do this from infrastructure to hardware to autonomy stack mm -hmm. to the safety framework. And that's an advantage because there's a reason why it's the fifth generation hardware and why all of those learnings went into the Daimler program um, it, it becomes such an advantage because you learn a lot as you drive. And you optimize for the best information you have, but fundamentally, like there's a big, big jump um, uh, like every order of magnitude that you drive um, in numbers of miles and what you earn. Mm -hmm. And the gap from really kind of like decent progress or L2 and so forth to what it takes to actually go L4. And at the end of the day, um, there's a feeling that Waymo has, uh, there's a long way to go. Uh, nobody's won, um, but the, there's a lot of advantages um, in all of these buckets where it's the only company that has shipped a fully driverless service where you can go and you can use it and it's at a decently like uh you know sizable scale um and those learnings can feed forward into solve how to solve the more general problem and you see this process you've deployed it in, yeah. in chandler uh, you don't know the timeline exactly but you could see the steps they, they seem yeah. almost incremental the steps it's become more engineering, engineering. Than, than totally blind R and D because it works yeah. in one place and then you move yeah. it to another place and you and, grow it this way. And just to give you an example, like we fundamentally changed our hardware and our software stack almost entirely from what went driverless in Phoenix to what is the current generation of the system on on both sides, because the things that got us to driverless, even though it got to driverless at way like way beyond human relative safety, um, it is fundamentally not well set up to scale in an exponential fashion without like getting into like huge kind of scaling pains. And so those learnings, you just can't shortcut. And so that's an advantage. And so uh, there's a lot of open challenges to kind of get through technical, organizational, like how do you solve problems that are increasingly broad and complex like this, work on multiple products. But there's a feeling that, okay, like balls in our court, there's a, 
a head start there. Now we got to go and solve it. And I think that focus on L4, it's a fundamentally different problem. If you think about it, like, um, let's say we were designing an L2 truck that was meant to be safer and help a human. You could do that with far less sensors, far less complexity, and provide value very quickly, arguably with what we already have today, just packaged up in a good product. But you would take a huge risk in having a gap from even yes. the like compute and sensors, not not to mention the software, to then jump from that system to an L4 system. So it's a huge risk, basically. So I can let me allow me to be the person that plays the devil's advocate and that argue for yeah. the Tesla approach. Yeah. So that the what you just laid out makes perfect sense and is exactly right. There are some open questions here, which is, it's possible that investing more in faster data collection, which is essentially what Tesla's doing, will get us there faster if the sensor suite doesn't matter yeah. as much and machine learning can do a lot of the work. This is the open question is, how much is, is the thing you mentioned before, how much of driving can be end-to-end -end learned? Mm -hmm. That's the open question. Uh, obviously, the, the Waymo and the vision-only machine learning approach will solve driving eventually, both. Yeah. The question is of timeline, what's faster? That's right. And what you mentioned, like if I were to make the opposite argument, like what, what puts Tesla uh, in, in the strongest position, it's data. That is their like superpower where they have an access to real world data effectively with like a safety driver uh, yes. and a, you know, like <laughs> they've, they found a way to like um, get paid by safety drivers versus pay for safety drivers. <laughs> yeah. right? Like it's a, uh, it's brilliant. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the, but you know, all joking aside, like um, one, it is incredible that they've built a business that's incredibly successful that can now be a foundation and bootstrap kind of like really aggressive investment in the autonomy space. Uh, if you can do it, that's always like an incredible kind of advantage. And then the data aspect of it, um, it is a giant amount of data if you can use it the right way to then solve yes. the problem. But the ability to collect um, and filter through the things that to the things that matter at real world scale at like a large distribution, that is a that is huge. Like it's a big advantage. Um, and so then the question becomes, can you use it in the right way? And do you have the right software systems and hardware systems in order to solve the problem? And you're right that in the long term, there's no reason to believe that pure camera systems can't solve the problem that humans obviously are solving with, you know, with vision systems. But question it's is big, when it's a risk. Uh, yeah, it's a big risk. So there's no argument that it's not a risk, right? Like, right. Um, and it's already such a hard problem. And so much of that problem, by the way, is... Um, uh, you know, even beyond the perception side, some of the hardest elements of the problem are on behavioral side and decision making and the long tail safety case. If you are adding risk and complexity on the input side from perception, you're now making a really, really hard problem, like which is on its own is still like almost insurmountably hard, even harder. And so the question is just how much. And this is where like you can easily get into a little bit of a kind of a trap where similar to how you how do you evaluate how good an AV company's product is like mm -hmm. you go and you do a, a a trial kind of a test run with them a demo run which they've kind of optimized like crazy and so forth and like and it feels good do you do you put any weight in that right you know that that gap is kind of like you know pretty large still um same thing on the like perception case like the long tail of computer vision is really really hard and there's a lot of ways that that can come up and even if it doesn't happen that often at all when you think about the safety bar and what it takes to actually go full driverless, not like incredible assistance driverless, but full driverless, um, 
that bar gets crazy high. And not only do you have to solve it on the behavioral side, but now you have to push computer vision beyond arguably where it's ever been pushed. And so you now on top of the broader AV challenge, you have a really hard perception challenge as well. So there's perception, there's planning, there's human-robot interaction. To me, what's fascinating about what Tesla is doing is in this march towards level four, because it's in the hands of so many humans, you get to see video, you get to see humans. I mean, forget yeah. forget companies, forget businesses. It's fascinating for humans to be interacting with robots. That's well, incredible. And they're actually helping kind of push it forward. And, yeah. and that is valuable, by the way, where even for us, a decent percentage of our data is human driving. Yes. Um, we intentionally have humans drive higher percentage than you might expect because that creates some of the best signals to train the autonomy. Mm-hmm. And so that is uh, on its own a value. So, so together we're kind of learning about this problem in an applied sense, just like you had with Cosmo. Like when it's when when you're chasing an actual product that people are going to use, ro- robot-based product that people are going to use, you have to contend with the reality of what it takes to build a robot that successfully perceives the world and operates in the world, and what it takes to have a robot that interacts with other humans in the world. And yeah. that that's like, to me, one of the most interesting problems humans have ever undertaken, because you're, uh, in trying to create an intelligent agent that operates in a human world, yeah. you're also understanding the nature of intelligence itself. Like how hard is driving is still not answered to me. Yeah. I still don't understand that. And all the subtle cues, like even little things like um, your interaction with a pedestrian where you look at each other and just go, okay, go, right? Like that's hard to do without a human driver, right? And you're missing that dimension. How do you communicate that? So there's like really, really interesting kind of like uh, elements here. Now here's what's beautiful. Can you imagine that like when autonomous driving is solved, how much of the technology foundation of that like space can go and have like tremendous just transformative impacts on on other problem areas and other, other spaces that have subsets of the, these same problems like it's just incredible to well, think about that it's, it's both a, a pro and a con is uh with autonomous driving is so um safety critical it's so so w- once you solve it it's beautiful because there's so many applications that are a lot less safety critical but it's also the the con of that is it's so safety it's so hard to solve so hard. and the same journalists that you mentioned that get excited for a demo are the ones who who will um write long articles about the, the, the failure of your company if there's w- one accident mm-hmm. uh, that's based on a robot. And it's 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 just society is so tense and waiting for failure of robots. You're in a, yeah. such a high stake environment. Failure has such a high cost. And it slows it's, down development. It's it hard. slows down development. Yeah, yeah, like the team like definitely noticed that like once you go driverless, like we're driverless in Phoenix and you continue to iterate, your iteration pace slows down. Um, yeah. Because your fear of regression forces so much more rigor that you know, obviously, you know, you have to find a compromise on like, okay, well, how often do we release driverless builds? Because every time you release a driverless build, you have to go through this like validation mm-hmm. process, which is very expensive and so forth. So um, it is interesting. It's like it's, it is this one of the hardest things. There's no other industry where like uh, you would not like you wouldn't release the products way way quicker when you start to kind of provide even portions of the value that, that you provide. Healthcare maybe is the other one. Uh, Health, that's yeah. right. That's... But at the same time, right? Like we've gotten there where you think of like surgery, right? Like you have surgery, there's always a risk, but like it's really, really bounded. 
you know that there's an accident rate when you go out and drive your car today, right? Like, uh, um, and you know what the fatality rate in the U.S. is per year. We're not banning driving because there was a car accident, but the bar for us is way higher, and we hold ourselves very serious to it. Where you have to not only be better than a human, but you probably have to like at scale be far better than a human by a big margin, and you have to be able to like really, really thoughtfully explain. Um, all of the ways that we validate that becomes very comfortable for humans to understand because a bunch of jargon that we use internally just doesn't compute. At the end of the day, we have to be able to explain to society how do we quantify the risk um, and acknowledge that there is some non-zero risk, but it's far above a human um, you know, relative safety. See, here's the thing. To push back a little bit uh, and bring Cosmo back in the conversation, you said something quite brilliant at the beginning of this conversation that I think probably applies for autonomous driving, which is, you know, there's this desire to make autonomous cars more safer than human driven cars. But if you create a product that's really compelling and is able to explain both the leadership and the engineers and the product itself can communicate intent, then I think people may be able to be willing to put up with a thing that might be even riskier than humans because they understand the value of taking risks. You mentioned the speed limit. Humans understand the value of going over the speed limit. Yeah. Humans understand the value of like going fast through a ye for, through a yellow light. Yeah. To take and when you're in Manhattan streets, pushing through uh, uh, crossing pedestrians, they understand that. I mean, this is a much more tense topic of discussion. So this is just me talking. So in with Cosmo's case, there was something about the, the way. This particular robot communicated the energy it brought, the intent it was able to communicate to to the humans that you understood that of course it needs to have a camera, yeah. Of course it needs to have this information, and in that same way, to me, of course a car needs to take risks. Of course there's going to be accidents. Mm -hmm. That's what, like, that's you know, if you want a car that never has an accident, to have a car that just doesn't go anywhere. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and so that. But that's tricky because that's not a robotics problem. Oh, and many accidents like are not even under like due to you, right? Obviously, right. it's a, so. There's a big difference, though. Um, yeah, you are. That's not a personal decision. You're also impacting, obviously, kind of the rest of the road, um, and we're facilitating it, right? And so there's a higher kind of you know kind of ethical and moral bar, which obviously then you know translates into as a society and from a regulatory standpoint kind of like what, what what comes out of it where it's hard for us to ever see this even being a debate in the sense that like you have to be beyond reproach from a safety standpoint because if you're wrong about this you could set the entire field back a decade right see i i this is me speaking i think if we look into the future there will be i personally believe this is me speaking yeah that there will be less and less focus on safety. That's still very, very high. Yeah, meaning but, like after autonomy is very common and accepted. Yeah. You but not, not, not so common as everywhere, but there, yeah. there has to be a transition yeah. because I think for innovation, just like you were saying, to explore ideas, you have to take risks. And I think if autonomy in the near term is to become prevalent in society, I think people need to be more willing to understand the nature of risk. The value of risk. Um, it's it's very difficult. You're right, of course, with driving, but that that's the fascinating nature of it. This it's a it's a it's a life and death 
situation that brings value to millions of people. So yeah. you have to figure out what, what do we value about this world? Yeah. How much do we value, how deeply do we want to avoid hurting other humans? That's right. And there is a point where like, you can imagine a scenario where Waymo has a system that is, uh, even when it's like uh, kind of beyond a you know human relative safety, um, and provably statistically will save lives, there is a thoughtful navigation of you know the that fact versus just kind of uh, society readiness and perception yeah, and yeah. education of um, so society and regulators and everything else where like. It's it's multidimensional, um, and it's not a purely logical uh, argument. But um, ironically, the logic can actually help with the emotions. Um, uh, and just like any technology, there's early adopters, and then there's kind of like a curve mm -hmm. that um, happens after it. But and eventually, celebrities you get the rock in a way more vehicle, and then everybody just comes. And along. then everybody's calms down because the rock <laughs> likes it. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> if he posts yeah. Uh, him, yeah, and yeah. it's like it's an open question on how this plays out. I mean, maybe we're pleasantly surprised, and it just like people just realize that this is such a enabler of life and uh, like efficiency and cost and everything that um, there's a pull. Like at some point, I actually fully believe that this will go from a thoughtful kind of you know you know, movement and tiptoeing and like kind of like a push to society realizes how wonderful of an enabler this could become and it becomes more of a pull. And um, hard to know exactly how that'll play out, but at the end of the day, like both the goods transportation and the people transportation side of it has that property where it's not easy. There's a lot of open questions and challenges to navigate. And there's obviously the technical problems to solve uh, as a, you know, kind of prerequisite, but um, they, they have such an opportunity that is, um, on a scale that very few industries in the last 20, 30 years have even had a chance to tackle, that I maybe we're pleasantly surprised by how much how much that tipping point, like in a really short amount of time, actually turns into a societal pull to kind of embrace the benefits of this. Yeah, I, I hope so. It seems like in the recent few decades, there's been tipping points for technologies where like overnight things change. It's yeah. uh, like uh, from taxis to ride sharing services, all that, that shift, I mean, there's just, shift after shift after shift that requires digitization and technology. I'm, I hope we're pleasantly surprised in this. So there's uh, millions of long haul trucks now in the United States. Do you see a future where there's millions of Waymo trucks and maybe just broadly speaking, Waymo vehicles, just like, like ants running around the United yeah. States uh, freeways and, and local roads? Yeah, in other countries too. Like. Uh, you look back decades from now, and it might be one of those things that just feels so natural, and then it becomes almost like a kind of interesting kind of oddity that we had none of it, like, uh, you know, kind of decades earlier. Um, and it'll take a long time to grow and scale. Very different challenges appear at every stage. But over time, like, this is one of the most enabling technologies that, um, that we have in the world uh, today. Um, it'll feel like you know, how was the world before the internet? How was the world before mobile phones? Like it's gonna have that sort of a feeling to it on both sides. It's hard to predict the future, but do you sometimes uh, think about weird ways it might change the world, like surprising ways? So obviously there's more direct ways where like uh, there's increases efficiency, it'll enable a lot of kind of logistics optimizations kind of things. It will change our, um, probably our roadways and all that kind of stuff. But 
it could also change society in some kind of interesting ways. Do, do, you, ever, do you ever think about how it might change cities, how it might change our lives, all that kind of yeah. stuff? You can imagine city uh, where people live versus work becoming more distributed because the pain of commuting becomes different, just easier. Uh, and that, you know, there's a lot of options that open up. The layout of cities themselves and how you think about car storage and parking obviously uh, just enables a completely different type of uh, 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 type of experience in urban environments. I, I think there was like a statistic that uh, something like... 30% of the traffic uh, in cities during rush hour is caused by a pursuit of parking um, or some, like some really high stats. So th those obviously kind of open up a lot of options. Um, flexibility on goods will enable new industries and businesses that never existed before because now the efficiency becomes um, more palatable. Good delivery, timing, consistency, and flexibility is going to change. The way we distribute the logistics network will change. The way we then can integrate with warehousing, with um, shipping, ports, you can start to think about greater automation through the whole kind of stack uh, and how that supply chain, the ripples become much more uh, agile versus like very grindy the way they are uh, today where it just the, the adaptation is like very tough and there's like a lot of constraints that we have. I think it'll be great for the environment. It'll be great for safety where like probably about 95% of accidents today um, statistically are due to just uh, attention or things that are preventable with, uh, with the strengths of automation. Yeah. And it, it'll be one of those things where like Industries will shift, but the net creation is going to be massively positive. Um, and then we just have to be thoughtful about the negative implications that will happen in, in local area, uh, places um, and adjust for those. But I'm an optimist in general for the technology where you could argue a negative on any new technology, but mm -hmm. you start to kind of see that if there is a big demand for something like this, the in almost all cases, the, like it's an enabling factor that's going to kind of propagate through the, um, you know, through society and particularly as life expectancies get longer and, you know, and so forth, like there's a, just a lot more need for um, a greater percentage of the population to kind of just be serviced with a high level of efficiency mm -hmm. um, because otherwise we're going to have a really hard time kind of scaling to what's ahead in the next 50 years um, in front of yeah, us. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. Every technology has uh, negative consequences, positive consequences, and we tend to focus on the negative a little bit too much. Uh, in fact, autonomous trucks are often brought up as an example of uh, artificial intelligence and robots in general taking our jobs. And as we've talked about briefly here, we talk a lot with Steve, you know, th that's, it is a concern that automation will take away certain jobs, it'll create other jobs. So there's temporary pain, uh, hopefully temporary, but pain is pain and uh, people suffer and that human suffering is really important to think about yeah, how, uh, but trucking is, very, I mean, there's a lot written on this is I would say far from the, the thing that would, that would cause the most pain. Yeah, there's even more positive properties about trucking where not only is there just a you know huge shortage which is gonna increase, the average age of truck drivers is getting closer to 50 because the younger people aren't wanting to come into it. They're trying to like, incentivize, lower the age limit, like all these sort of things. Um, and the demand is just going to increase. And the least favorable, like, I mean, it depends on the person, but in most cases, the least favorable types of routes are the massive long haul routes where you're on the road away from your family 300 plus days yeah, a year. Steve talked about the pain of those kind of yeah. routes from a family perspective. You're, 
you're basically away from family. It's not just hours, you work insane hours, but it's also just time away from family. And just Obesity slow. rate is through the roof because you're just sitting all day. Like, uh, um, it's really, really tough. And, um, uh, and that's also where like the biggest kind of safety risk is because of fatigue. And, um, and so when you think of a, the gradual evolution of how trucking comes in, first of all, it's not overnight. It's going to take decades to kind of phase in all the, like, there's just a long, long, long road ahead. But the, the routes and the portions of trucking that are going to require humans the longest and benefit the most from humans are the short haul and most complicated kind of yes. more urban routes, which are also the more, more pleasant ones, which are, um, you know, less continual driving time, more, um, uh, uh, more flexibility on like, you know, geography and location. And you get to kind of sleep at, the, at home with, at, at your own home. And, and, so. and very importantly, if you optimize the logistics, you're going to use human, you're going to use humans much better right. and and thereby pay them much better because like one one of the biggest problems is truck drivers currently are paid by like how much they drive so you, they really feel the pain of inefficient logistics yeah because like if they're just sitting around for hours which they often do not driving waiting yeah they're not getting paid for that time that's right and, and that so like logistics has a significant yeah. impact on the quality of life of a truck driver. Yeah. And a high percentage of trucks are like uh, empty because of inefficiencies in the yes. system. Um, yeah. yeah, it's one of those things where like, um, and the other thing is when you increase the efficiency of a system like this, the overall net like volume of the system tends to increase, right? Like the the entire market cap of trucking is going to go up um, when the efficiency improves uh, and facilitates both growth in industries and better utilization of trucking. Um, and so that on its own just creates more and more demand, which um, uh, of all the places where AI comes in and starts to really um, uh, kind of reshape an industry, this is one of those where like there's just a lot of positives that for at least any time in the foreseeable future seem really lined up in a good way um, to... Um, kind of come in and help with the shortage and start to kind of optimize for the the routes that are most dangerous and most uh, painful. Yeah, so th this is true for trucking, but if we zoom out broader, you know, automation and AI does technology broadly, I would say, yeah. but you know, automation is a thing that has a potential in the next couple of decades to shift the kind of jobs available to humans. Yes. And so that results in like I said, human suffering because people lose their jobs. There's economic pain there. Ships, and there's, yeah. there's also a pain of meaning. So for, for a lot of people, work is a source of uh, meaning. It's a source of identity, of, uh, of pride, of, you know, pride in getting good at the job, pride in craftsmanship and excellence, which is what truck drivers talk about. Yeah. But but that this is true for a lot Huge of jobs. Yeah. And is that something you think about as a sort of a roboticist zooming out from the trucking yeah. thing? Um, like where do you think it would be harder to find activity and work that's a source of identity, a source of meaning in the future? Uh, I, I do think about it because you want to make sure that you you worry about the entire system, like not just like the part autonomy plays in it, but what are the ripple effects of it down the road? And um on enough of a time window, there's a lot of opportunity to put in the right policies and the right opportunities to kind of reshape and retrain and find those, those openings. And so just to give you a few examples, both trucking and cars, we have remote assistance facilities that uh, are there to interface with customers and monitor vehicles and 
provide like very focused kind of assistance on uh, kind of areas where the vehicle may want to request help uh, in understanding an environment. So those are jobs that kind of you know get created and supported. Um, I remember like taking a tour of one of the Amazon facilities where um, you've probably seen the Kiva Systems robots, uh, mm-hmm. where you have these orange robots that have automated um, uh, the warehouse, like kind of picking and, and collecting of items, mm-hmm. and it's like really elegant and beautiful way. Um, it's actually one of my favorite applications of robotics of all time. Um, uh, you know, ever since, like I think I kind of came across that company in like 2006. It was just amazing. And what was like the warehouse robots that transport little yeah. things? Yeah. So basically, instead of a person going and walking around and picking the seven items in your order, um, these robots go and pick up a shelf and move it over in a row where like the seven shelves that contain the seven items are lined up in a you know, laser or whatever points to what you need to get and you go and pick it and you place it to fill mm-hmm. the order. And so the people were fulfilling the final orders. What was interesting about that is that when I was asking them about like kind of the impact on labor, when they transitioned that warehouse, the throughput increased so much that the jobs shifted towards the final fulfillment, even though the robots took over entirely the the search of the items themselves. Mm-hmm. And the labor, the job stayed like nobody, like there was, it was actually the same amount of jobs, uh, roughly they were necessary, but the throughput increased by like, I think over two X or some, mm-hmm. some amount, right? Like, so, um, you have these situations that are not zero sum games in this really interesting yeah. way. And the optimist to me thinks that there's these types of solutions in almost any industry where the growth that's enabled creates opportunities that you can then leverage, yeah. but you got to be intentional about finding those and really helping make those links because, and even if you make the argument that like there's a net positive, locally there's always tough hits that you got to be very careful about. That's right. You have to have an understanding of that link because there's a short period of time, whether training is acquired or just mental transition or physical or whatever is acquired, that's still going to be short-term pain. The uncertainty of it, there's families involved. You know, it. it it's. It, I mean, it's ex- exceptionally is difficult on a human level. And you have to really think about that. Uh, even yeah. You can't just look at economic metrics always, it's human beings. That's right. And and you can't even just uh, take it as like, okay, well, we need to like subsidize or whatever, because like there is an element of just personal pride where right. majority of people, like people don't wanna just be okay, but like they wanna actually like have a craft, like you said, and yeah. have a, vi- a mission and uh, yeah. feel like they're having a really positive impact. And so, um, my personal belief is that there's a lot of transferability and skill set um, that is possible, especially if you create a bridge and an, and an investment um, to enable it. Um, and to some degree, that's our responsibility as well um, in this process. Uh, you mentioned Kiva Robots, Amazon. Let me ask you about the Astro Robot, which is, uh, I don't know if you've seen it. It's Amazon has announced it. Uh, it's a home robot. Mm-hmm. that they have a screen looks awfully a lot like uh cosmo has um i think different vision probably mm-hmm. um well, what are your thoughts about like home robotics in this kind of space there's there's been a quite a bunch of home robots social robots that uh, very unfortunately have closed their doors that um for various reasons perhaps they were too expensive there's been the manufacturing challenges all that kind of stuff what are your thoughts about amazon getting into the space yeah, we had some signs that they were getting into it like long, 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 long ago. <laughs> Maybe they were a little bit little, too interested in Cosmo and uh, yeah. like during our conversations. But they're also very good partners actually for us uh, as we kind of just integrated a lot of shared technology. But um, uh, if I could also get your thoughts on, you, know, you could think of uh, Alexa as a robot as well, yeah. uh, Echo. 
do you see those as fundamentally different just because you can move and look around? Is that fundamentally yeah. different than a thing that just sits in place? Uh, it opens up options. Um, but, uh, you know, my, my, my first reaction is I think like, I, I, uh, I have my doubts that this one's going to hit the mark because I think for the price point that it's at and the like kind of functionality and value propositions that they're um, trying to put out, it's uh, uh, it's still searching for like the kill application that like justifies, I think it was like a $1,500 price point or yeah. kind of somewhere on there. That's a really high bar. So there's enthusiasts and early adopters will obviously kind of pursue it, but you have to like really, really hit a high mark um, at that price point, which we always tried to, we were always very cautious about jumping too quickly to the more advanced systems that we really wanted to make, yeah. but would have... Um, raise the bar so much that you have to be able to hit it uh, in today's co cost structures and technologies. The mobility is an angle that hasn't been utilized, but it has to be utilized in the right way. Um, yeah. And so that's going to be the biggest challenge is like, can you meet the bar of what a what the mass market consumer, like, you know, think like, you know, our, uh, our neighbors, our friends, parents, like, would they find a deep, deep value, like, in, you know, in this at a mass scale that, you know, that justifies the price point? I think that's, in the end, one of the biggest challenges for robotics, especially consumer robotics, um, where you have to kind of meet that bar. Uh, it becomes very, very hard. Um, and there's also the, the higher bar, just like you were saying with Cosmo, of, you know, a thing that can look one way and then turn around and look at you there's that's either a super desirable quality or super undesirable quality yeah. depending on how much you trust the thing that's right and so there's uh there's a problem of trust to solve there there's a problem of personalities the thing that is the quote-unquote problem that cosmos solved so well yeah is that there you trust the thing yeah and that has to do with the company with the leadership with the intent that's communicated by the device and the company and all, right. everything together yeah exactly right uh and so um and then I think they also have to retrace some of the like learnings on the character side where like, as usual, I think that's the place where it's uh, a lot of companies are great at the hardware side of it and can, you know, think about those elements. And then there's like, you know, the thinking about the AI challenges, particularly with the advantage of Alexa is a, is a pretty huge boost for them. Um, the character side of it for technology companies is pretty new novel territory. And so that um, will take some iterations, but um, yeah, I mean, I hope, uh, I hope there's continued progress in the space and that thread doesn't kind of go dormant for too long. Um, and it's not, you know, it's going to take a while to kind of evolve into like the ideal applications. But, you know, this is one of um, Amazon's, I guess it, like you could call it, it's definitely like part of their DNA, but in many cases is also strength where they're very willing to like iterate uh, kind of aggressively and um, and move quickly. And take risks. Um, and take I mean, risks. You have and, deep pockets, so you can yeah. kind of... Yeah, and then maybe have more misfires than an Apple would. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, it's different styles and different approaches. And, um, you know, at, at the end of the day, it's like uh, there's a few familiar uh, kind of elements there for sure, which was, uh, you know, kind of... You know, Homage. Is <laughs> <laughs> one way to put it. Yeah. Uh, so why is it so hard at a high level um, to build a robotics company a robotics company that lives for a long time. So if, if you look at, so I thought Cosmo for sure would live for a very long time. That to me was exceptionally successful vision and idea and implementation. Uh, iRobot is an example of a company that has pivoted in all the right ways to survive yeah. and, and arguably thrive by focusing on the, having like a, have a driver that constantly provides profit, which is the vacuum cleaner. 
And of course there's like Amazon, what they're, what they're doing is they're almost like taking risks so they can afford it because they have other sources of, of revenue, right? But outside of those examples, most robotics companies fail. Yeah. Uh, why, why do they fail? Why is it so hard to run a robotics company? iRobot's impressive because they found a really, really great fit of where the technology could satisfy a really clear use case and need. And they did it well, and they didn't try to overshoot from a cost-to-benefit standpoint. Um, uh, robotics is hard because it like tends to be more expensive. It combines way more technologies than a lot of other types of companies do. If I were to like say one thing that is maybe the biggest risk in like a robotics company failing is that um, it can be either a technology in search of an application, or they try to bite off a kind of an offering that has a mismatch in kind of price to function, um, okay. and uh, uh, just the mass market appeal isn't there. And um, consumer products are just hard. It's just, uh, I mean, after all the years in it, like definitely kind of feel a lot of the battle scars because you have, um, you know, you not only do you have to like hit the function, but you have to educate and explain, get awareness up, deal with different types of consumers. Like, uh, you know, there's um, there's a reason why a lot of technologies sometimes start in the enterprise space and then kind of continue forward in the consumer space. Even like, you know, you see AR like starting to kind of make that shift with HoloLens and so forth uh, in some ways. Consumers and price points that they're willing to kind of uh, be attracted in a mass market way. And I don't mean like, you know, 10,000 enthusiasts bought it, but I mean like, you know, 2 million, 10 million, 50 million, like mass market kind of interest, uh, you know, have bought it. Um, That bar is very, very high. And typically robotics is novel enough and non-standardized enough to where it pushes on price points so much that you can easily get out of range where the capabilities in today's technology or just the function that was picked just doesn't line up. Um, And so that product market fit is very important. So the the space of killer apps or or rather super compelling apps is much smaller because it's easy to get outside of the price range yeah, and for it's, most well, consumers. And it's not constant, right? Like, yeah. And that's why like, we picked off entertainment because the quality was just so low in physical entertainment that we could we felt we could leapfrog that and still create like, a really compelling offering at a price point that was defensible. And and we like that proved out to be true. Um, and over time, that same opportunity opens up in healthcare, in home applications and, you know, commercial uh, applications and kind of broader, more generalized interface. But there's missing pieces in order for that to happen. And all of those have to be present um, for it to line up. And we see these sort of trends in technology where, um, you know, kind of technologies that start in one place evolve and Mm -hmm. kind of grow to another. Some things start in gaming, some things start in uh, in space uh, or aerospace and then kind of move into the consumer market. And sometimes it's just a timing thing, right? Where how many stabs at what became the iPhone were there over the 20 years before that just weren't quite ready in the function um, relative to the kind of price point and complexity. And sometimes it's a small detail of the implementation that makes all the difference, which is right. uh, design uh, Design is so important. So something, yeah, like the the, U, the new generation UX, right? That yeah. It's, um, and, uh, and that's... Uh, um, it's tough, and oftentimes all of them have to be there, and it has to be like a perfect storm. And um, but yeah, history repeats itself in a lot of ways uh, in in a lot of these trends, which is pretty fascinating. Well, let me ask you about the humanoid form. What do you think about the Tesla bot and humanoid robotics in general? So obviously, to me, autonomous driving, uh, Waymo, and the other companies working in the space, 
that seems to be a great place to invest in potential revolutionary application of robotics, application, focus application. What's the role of humanoid robotics? Do you think TeslaBot is ridiculous? Do you think it's super promising? Do you think it's interesting, full of mystery, nobody knows? What do you think about this thing? Yeah, I think today humanoid form robotics is research. There's very few situations where you actually need a humanoid form to solve a problem. Uh, if you think about it, right, like wheels are more efficient than legs. There's joints and degrees of freedom beyond a certain point, just add a lot of complexity and cost, right? So if you're doing a humanoid robot, oftentimes it's in the pursuit of a humanoid robot, not in the pursuit of an application for the time being. Yeah. Um, especially when you have like kind of the gaps in interface and, you know, kind of AI that we kind of talk about today. So anything Elon does, I'm interested in, in following. So there's yeah. a, there's an element of that where- No like, matter how crazy. Yeah, how crazy it is. I just like, uh, you know, I'll pay attention. And I'm curious yeah. to see what comes out of it. So it's like, you can't, you can't ever, you know, ignore it, but you know, it's uh, definitely far afield from their kind of core business, um, uh, obviously. And- um, What was interesting to me is I've, I've disagreed with, you know, Elon a lot about this is to me the the compelling aspect of the humanoid form and a lot of kind of robots cosmo for example is the human robot interaction part yeah uh from elon musk's perspective the tesla bot has nothing to do with the human it's a form that's effective for the factory because the factory is designed for humans but to me the reason you might want to argue for the humanoid yeah. form is because you know, at a party, yeah, uh, it's a nice way to fit into the party. The yeah. humanoid form has a compelling notion to it in the same way that Cosmo is compelling. Mm -hmm. I, you, I would argue, if we were arguing about this, that it's cheaper to build a, a Cosmo like yeah. that form. But if you wanted to make an argument, which I have with Jim Keller about, you know, you could actually make a humanoid robot for pretty cheap. It's possible. And uh, then the question is, all right, if if you are using an application where it can be flawed, um, it can it can have a personality and be flawed in the same way that Cosmo is, then maybe it's interesting for integration to human society. Mm -hmm. That's that's to me is an interesting application of a humanoid form because humans are drawn, like I mentioned to you, legged robots. Yeah. We're drawn to legs and limbs yeah. and body language and all that kind of stuff. And even a face, even if you don't have the facial features, which you might not want to have for the, uh, the, the not, to, to reduce the creepiness factor, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, that to me, the humanoid form is compelling. But in terms of that being the right form for the factory environment, I'm not so sure. Yeah, for the factory environment, like right off the bat, um, what are you optimizing for? Is it strength? Is it mobility? Is it versatility, right? Like that changes completely the look and feel of the robot that you yeah. create, you know, and uh Almost certainly, the human form is over-designed for some dimensions and constrained for some dimensions. And so, like, the, the, like, what are you grasping? Is it big? Is it little? Right. So you would customize it and make it um, customizable um, for the different needs if that was the optimization, right? And then, you know, for the other one, uh, I could totally be wrong. You know, I still feel that the closer you try to get to a human the more you're subject to the um, biases of what a human should be, and you lose flexibility to shift away from your weaknesses uh, and towards your strengths. And that changes over time, but there's ways to make really approachable and natural interfaces for robotic kind of characters and, you know, and, and uh, 
you know, and the kind of deployments in these applications that do not at all look like a human directly, but that actually creates way more flexibility and capability and, and role and forgiveness and interface and everything else. Yeah, it's interesting, but I'm still confused by the magic I see in legged robots. Yeah, so there is a magic. So I, I'm uh, absolutely amazed at it from a, a technical curiosity standpoint, and like the mm-hmm. the magic that like the Boston Dynamics team can do from a you know like from walking and jumping and so forth. Now, like there's been a long journey to try to find an application for that sort of um, technology, but wow, that's incredible technology, right? Yes. So then you kind of go towards, okay, are you working back from a goal of yes. what you're trying to solve or are you working forward from a technology and then looking for a solution? And I think that's where um, it's a kind of a bi-directional search oftentimes, but yeah. you gotta, you, the two have to meet. And that, that's where humanoid robots is kind of close to that in that like, it is a decision about a form factor and a t- t- you know, technology that it forces um, that doesn't have a clear justification on why that's the killer app for you know from the other end. But I think the core fascinating idea with the Tesla bot is the one that's carried by Waymo as well is when you're solving the general robotics problem of uh, perception control where the, it's, it's, there's the very clear applications of driving. It's as you get better and better at it when you have like the Waymo driver. Yeah, the whole world starts to kind of start to look like a robotics problem. So it's yeah. very interesting. For now, your Detection, focus- classification, yeah. segmentation, tracking, planning, like it's, yeah. So there's no reason, I mean, I'm not I'm not speaking for Waymo here, but, you know, um, moving goods, there's no reason transformer-like this thing couldn't, you know, uh, take the goods up an elevator, you know? Yeah. Like that, like uh, slowly, expand what it means to move goods and expand more and more of the world uh, into a robotics problem. Well, that's right. And you start to like, think of it as an end-to-end robotics problem from like loading from, you know, from everything. And even like the truck itself, um, you know, today's generation is integrating into today's understanding of what a vehicle is, right? A Pacifica, Jaguar, uh, the, the freight liners from Daimler, there's nothing that stops these us from like down the road after like starting to get to scale to like expand these partnerships to really rethink what would the next generation of a truck look like um, that is actually optimized for autonomy, not for today's world. Um, and maybe that means a very different type of trailer. Maybe that like there's a lot mm-hmm. of things you could rethink on that front, which is on its own very, very exciting. Let me ask you, like I said, you went to the mecca of robotics, which is CMU, Carnegie Mellon University. You got a PhD there. So maybe by way of advice and maybe by way of story and memories, what does it take to get a PhD in robotics at CMU? And maybe you can throw in there some advice for people who are thinking about doing work in artificial intelligence and robotics and are thinking about whether to get a PhD. It's like I actually went, I was a uh, CMU for undergrad as well and didn't know anything about robotics coming in and was doing, you know, electrical computer engineering, computer science, and really got more and more into kind of AI and then fell in love with autonomous driving. And at that point, like that was just by a big margin, like such a incredible, like central spot of, uh, of develop, of investment in that area. And so what I would say is that like robotics, like for 
all the progress that's happened is still a really young field. There's a huge amount of opportunity. Now that opportunity shifted where something like autonomous driving has moved from being very research and academics driven to being commercial driven where you see the investments happening um, in commercial. Now there's other areas that are much younger um, and you see like kind of grasping and manipulation, making kind of the same sort of journey that like autonomy made and there's other areas as well. What I would say is the space moves very quickly Anything you do a PhD in, like it is in most areas, will evolve and change as technology changes and constraints change and hardware changes and the world changes. Um, and so the beautiful thing about robotics is that it's super broad. It's not a narrow space at all, and it can be a million different things in a million different industries. And so uh, it's a great opportunity to come in and get a broad foundation on AI, machine learning, computer vision, systems, hardware, sensors, all these separate things. You do need to like go deep and find something that you're like really, really passionate uh, about. Obviously, like just like any PhD, this is like a five, six year kind of uh, endeavor. And you have to love it enough to go super deep to learn all the things necessary to be super deeply functioning in that area and then contribute to it in a way that hasn't been done before. And in robotics, that probably means um, more breadth because robotics is rarely kind of like one particular kind of narrow technology. And it means being able to collaborate with teams where like one of the coolest aspects of like my the the experience that I like kind of cherish in our PhD is that we actually had a pretty large AV project that for that time was like a pretty serious initiative where you got to like partner with a larger team and you had the experts in perception and the experts in planning and the staff and the mechanical engineers. It was a dropper challenge. Um, so I was working on the uh, a project called UPI back then, mm -hmm. uh, which was basically the off-road version of the DARPA challenge. It. it was a DARPA-funded project for basically like a large off-road vehicle that you would like drop and then give it a waypoint 10 kilometers away and it would have to navigate a completely unstructured in an off-road environment. environment yeah so like forests ditches rocks vegetation and so it was like a really really interesting kind of a hard problem where like wheels would be up to my shoulders it's like gigantic yeah. right yeah by the way av for people stands for autonomous vehicles Autonomous vehicles yeah <laughs> sorry um and so what I, what i think is like the beauty of robotics but also kind of like the expectation is that um there's um spaces in computer science where you can be very very narrow and deep mm -hmm. Robotics, one of the the necessity, but also the beauty of it is that it forces you to be excited about that breadth and that partnership across different disciplines that enable it. But that also opens up so many more doors where you can go and you can do robotics in almost any category. Where robotics isn't a in, isn't really an industry. It's like it, it's like AI, right? It's like the application of physical automation to. Uh, you know, to all these other worlds. And so you can do robotic surgery, you can do vehicles, you can do factory automation, you can do healthcare, you can do like uh, leverage the AI around the sensing to think about static sensors and scene understanding. So um, so I think that's got to be the expectation and the excitement. And it uh, breeds people that are probably a little bit more collaborative and more uh, excited about um, working in teams. Uh, if I could briefly comment on the fact that the robotics people I've met in my life uh, from CMU at MIT, they're really happy people. Yeah. Because I think it's the collaborative thing. Yeah. I think I think you don't... You <laughs> you're not like a, sitting in like the fourth basement. Uh, yes, exactly. With the, a, like, which yeah. when you're doing machine learning purely software, yeah. it's very tempting to just disappear into your own hole yeah. and never collaborate. And, and there that breeds a little bit more of the silo mentality of like, 
I have a problem. It's almost like negative to talk to somebody else or yeah. something like that. But robotics folks are just very collaborative, very yeah. friendly. And just And there's also an energy a, of like, you get to confront the physics of reality often, yeah. which is humbling and also exciting. So it's humbling when it it yeah. fails and exciting when it finally it's works. It's like a purity of the passion. You got to remember that like right now, like robotics and AI is like just all the rage and autonomous vehicles and all this. Like 15 years ago and 20 years ago, like it wasn't that deeply lucrative. People that went into robotics, they did it because they were like, thought it was just the coolest thing in the world yeah. to like make physical things intelligent yeah. in the real world. And so there's like a raw passion where they went into it for the right reasons and so forth. And so it's really great space. And that organizational challenge, by the way, like um, when you think about the challenges in AV, we talk a lot about the technical challenges, the organizational challenges through the roof where um, you think about the the what it takes to build an AV system. And you have companies that are now thousands of people and, um, you know, you look at other really hard technical problems like an operating system, it's pretty well established. Like you kind of know that there's the file system, there's virtual memory, there's this, there's that, there's like uh, um, caching and like, and there's like a really reasonably well-established modularity and APIs and so forth. And so you can kind of like scale it in an efficient fashion. That doesn't exist anywhere near to that level of maturity in autonomous driving right now. And tech stacks are being reinvented, organizational structures are being reinvented. You have problems like pedestrians that are not isolated problems. They're part sensing, part behavior prediction, part planning, part evaluation. And like one of the biggest challenges is actually how do you solve these problems where the mental capacity of a human is starting to get strained on how do you organize it and think about it where you know you have this like multi-dimensional matrix that needs to all work together. And so that makes it kind of cool as well because it's not like solved at all uh, from, you know, like what what, is, what does it take to actually scale this, right? Mm -hmm. And then you look at like other gigantic challenges that have, you know, th that have been success successful and are way more mature, there's a stability to it. And like maybe the autonomous vehicle space will get there, but right now just as many uh, technical challenges as they are, they're like organizational challenges on how do you like solve these problems that touch on so many different areas and efficiently tackle them while like maintaining progress among all these constraints um, while scaling. By way of advice, what advice would you give to uh, somebody thinking about doing a robotics startup? You mentioned Cosmo, somebody that wanted to carry the Cosmo flag forward, the Anki flag forward. Looking back at your experience, looking forward at a future that will obviously have such robots, yeah. what advice would you give to that person? Yeah. It was the greatest experience ever. And it's like, there's something you, there are things you learn navigating uh, a startup that you'll never, like, you, you, it was very hard to encounter that in like a typical kind of work environment. And, um, and it's just, it's, it's wonderful. You got to be ready for it. It's not as like, you know, the, the, the glamour of a startup, there's just like just brutal emotional swings up and down. And so, um, having co-founders actually helps a ton. Like I would not, cannot imagine doing it solo, but having at least so somebody where on your darkest days, you can kind of like really openly just like have that conversation and, you know, lean onto somebody that's, that's in the thick of it with you helps a lot. What well, I would say- What was the nature of, of darkest days and the emotional swings? Is it worried about the funding? Is it worried about whether any of your ideas are any good or ever were good? Is it like the self-doubt? Uh, is it like facing new challenges that have nothing to do with the technology? Like, 
organizational, yeah. human resources, that kind of stuff. What, what yeah, you what come was... from a world in school where you feel that uh, you put in a lot of effort and you'll get the right result and input translates proportional to output and you know you need to sol solve the set or do whatever and you just kind of get it done. Now, PhD tests out a little bit, but at the end of the day, you put in the effort, you tend to like kind of come out with your uh, enough results to you kind of get a PhD. In the startup space, like, you know, like you could talk to 50 investors and they just don't see your vision and it doesn't matter how hard you kind of tried and pitched. You could uh, work incredibly hard and you have a manufacturing defect and if you don't fix it, you're going to, you're out of business. Um, you need to raise money by a certain date and there's a, you got to have this milestone in order to like have a good pitch and you do it. You have to have this talent and you just don't have it inside the company or, um, you know, you have to get 200 people or however many people kind of like along with you and kind of buy in the journey. Um, you're like disagreeing with an investor and they're your investor. So it's just like, you know, it's like you, there's no walking away from it. Right. So, um, and it tends to be like those things where you just kind of get clobbered in so many different ways that like things end up being harder than you expect. And it's like such a gauntlet, but you learn so much in the process. And there's a lot of people that actually end up rooting for you and helping you like from the outside and you get good, great mentors and you like get find fantastic people that step up in the company. And you have this like magical period where everybody's like, it's life or death for the company, but like you're all fighting for the same thing. And it's the most satisfying kind of journey ever. Um, the things that make it easier and that I would recommend is like be really, really thoughtful about the the application. Like there's a there's a saying of like kind of you know, team and execution and market and like kind of how important are each of those. Um, and oftentimes the market wins. And you come at it thinking that if you're smart enough and you work hard enough and you're like have the right talented team and so forth, like you'll always kind of find a way through. And um it's surprising how much dynamics are driven by the industry you're in and the timing of you entering that industry. Um, and so just uh, Waymo is a great example of it. There is, there will, I don't know if there'll ever be another company or, or suite of companies that has raised and continues to spend so much money at such an early uh, phase of revenue generation and, and productization um, that, you know, from a PNL standpoint, uh, like it's, it's a, anomaly, like by any measure of any industry that's ever existed, um, except for maybe the US space program, uh, like, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, like, yeah. but it's like a multiple trillion dollar opportunities, which is so unusual to find that size of a market yes. that just the progress that shows the de-risking of it, you could apply whatever discounts you want off of that trillion dollar market and it still justifies the investment that mm -hmm. is happening because like being successful in that space makes all the investment feel trivial. Mm -hmm. Now, by the same consequence, like the size of the market, the size of the target audience, the ability to capture that market share, how hard that's going to be, who the incumbents, like that's probably one of the lessons I appreciate like more than anything else where like those things really, really do matter. And um, oftentimes can dominate the quality of the team or execution. Because if you miss the timing or you do it in the wrong space or you run into like the institutional kind of headwinds of a particular environment. Like let's say you have the greatest idea in the world, but you barrel into healthcare, but it takes 10 years to innovate in healthcare because of a lot of challenges, right? Like there's fundamental uh, laws of physics that you have to think about. And so um, the combination of like Anki and Waymo kind of drives that point home for me where you can do a ton if you have the right market, the right opportunity, the right way to explain it and you show the progress in the right sequence, um, it actually can really significantly change the course of your 
journey in startup. How much of it is understanding the market and how much of it is creating a, a new market? So how do you think about, like space robotics is really interesting. You, you said exactly right. The space of applications is small. Yeah. You know, relative to the cost involved. So how much is like truly revolutionary thinking about like, what is the application? And then, yeah, but so like creating something that didn't exist, didn't really exist. Like this is pretty obvious to me. The whole space of home robotics, just every, everything that Cosmo did. I guess you could talk to it as a toy, and people will understand it. But Cosmo is much more than a toy. Yeah, and I don't think people fully understand the value of that. You have to create it, and the product will communicate it. Like just just like the iPhone, nobody understood the value yeah. of of no keyboard and a, a thing that's, that can do web browsing. I don't think they understood the value of that until you create it. Yeah. Having a foot in the door and an entry point still helps because at the end of the day, like an iPhone replaced your phone. And so it had a fundamental purpose and it has all these things <laughs> yes. that it did better, right? That's true. And so then you could do ABC on top of it. And, yeah. uh, and then like, you even remember the early commercials where it was always like one application of what it could do. And then you get a phone call. Right? Yeah. And yeah. so, that was intentionally sending a message, something familiar, but then like yes. you can send a text message, you can listen to music, you can surf the web, right? And so, you know, autonomous driving obviously anchors on that as well. You don't have to explain to somebody right. the functionality of an autonomous truck, right? Like there's nuances around it, but the functionality makes sense. Um, in the home, you have a fundamental advantage. Like we always thought about this because it was so painful to explain to people what our products did and how, like, how to communicate that super cleanly, right. especially when something was so experiential. And so, you compare like Anki to Nest. Nest um, had some beautiful products where they started scaling and like actually find like really great success. And they had like really clean and beautiful marketing messaging because they anchored on reinventing existing categories where mm -hmm. it was a th smart thermostat, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, like, and so you you kind of are able to um, take what's familiar anchor that understanding and then explain what's what's better about it. That's so, funny. You're right. Cosmo is like totally new thing. Like what what is this thing? So we struggled. We spent uh, like a, a lot of money on marketing. We had a hard, like we we actually had far greater efficiency on Cosmo than um, anything else because we found a way to capture the emotion in some little shorts to kind of lean into the personality in our marketing. And it became viral where like we had these kind of videos that would like go and, and get like hundreds of thousands of views and like kind of like get spread and uh, sometimes millions of views. And so, um, but it was like really, really hard. Um, and so finding a way to kind of like anchor on something that's familiar, but then grow into something that's not um, is an advantage. But then again, like you don't have, like there's successes otherwise, like Alexa never had a comp, right? Uh, mm -hmm. You could argue that that's very novel and very new. And, um, uh, and there's a lot of other examples that kind of created a, kind of a category out of like Kiva systems. I mean, they like came in and they like, uh, enterprise is a little easier because if you can, uh, it's less susceptible to this because right. if you can argue a clear value proposition, it's a more logical conversation that you can have um, with customers. It's not, it's a little bit less emotional and um, kind of subjective, but. Yeah, in the home you have to, the, yeah, so like a home robot, it's like, home. what does that mean? Yeah, And so then you really have to be crisp about the value proposition and what like, really makes it worth it like and and we by the way went to that same order we almost like uh we almost hit a wall coming out of 2013 where we were so big on explaining why our stuff was so high tech and all the kind of like great technology in it and how cool it is and so forth 
um, to having to make a super hard pivot on why is it fun and why do like does the random kind of family of you know four need this right like yeah. so you know it's learnings but that's that's the challenge and I think like robotics tends to sometimes fall into the new category problem but then you got to be really crisp about why it needs to exist well I think some of robotics depending on the category depending on the application is a little bit of a marketing this uh challenge and I don't I don't mean I mean, it's it's the kind of marketing that Waymo is doing, that Tesla is doing, is like showing off incredible engineering, incredible technology, but convincing, like you said, a family of four that yeah. this this will this is like this is transformative for your life. This yeah. this they, is this is fun. This is they uh, don't care easy. how much tech is in your thing. Yeah, they don't. <laughs> like, they really yeah, don't care. Like they need to know why they want it. So and some of that is just marketing. Yeah, and that's why like right? Roomba, like. Um, Yes, they didn't, you know, like go and, you know, have this like, you know, huge, huge, you know, ramp into like the entirety of like kind of AI robotics and so forth. But like they built a really great business in um, uh, in, in a vacuum cleaner world. And like everybody understands what a vacuum cleaner is. Um, most people are annoyed by doing it. Um, and now you have one that like kind of does it itself. Uh, yeah. In various degrees of quality. But that is so compelling that like it's easier to understand and like uh, and they had a very kind of and I think they have like fifteen percent of the vacuum cleaner market so it's like pretty successful right I think we need more of those um, types of thoughtful stepping stones in robotics but mm -hmm. the opportunities are becoming bigger because hardware's cheaper computes cheaper clouds cheaper and AI is better so there's a lot of opportunity if we zoom out from specifically startups and robotics what advice do you have? to uh, high school students, college students about career and uh, living a life that you can be proud of. You lived one heck of a life. You're very successful in several domains. Um, if you can convert that into a generalizable potion, what advice would you give? Yeah, it's a very good question. So it's very hard to go into a space that you're not passionate about and push, like, push hard enough to be, you know, to, to like, maximize your potential uh, in it. And so there's a um, there's always kind of like the saying of like, okay, follow your passion. Great. Try to find the overlap of where your passion overlaps with like a growing opportunity and need in the world, where it's not too different than the startup kind of argument that we talked about, where um, if you are- <laughs> Where your right, passion meets the market. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like, because it's like, uh, um, it's a, you know, it, that's a beautiful thing where like you can do what you love, but uh, it's also just opens up tons of opportunities because the world's ready for it. Right. Like, and so, um, and so like, if you're interested in technology, um, that might point to like, go and study machine learning because you don't have to decide what career you're going to go into, but it's going to be such a versatile space that's going to be at the root of like everything that's going to be in front of us that you can have eight different careers in different industries um, and be an absolute expert in this like kind of tool set that you wield that can go and be applied. Um, and that, by the way, that doesn't apply to just technology, right? It's uh, It could be the exact same thing if you want to, um, you know, the same thought process applies to design, to marketing, to, um, you know, to sales, to anything. But um, that versatility where you like, um, when you're in a space that's going to continue to grow, um, it's just like, what company do you join? One that just is going to grow and, and the growth creates opportunities where the surface area is just going to increase and the problems will never get stale. And you can have, you know, many like, and so you go into a career where you have that sort of growth in the, in the world that you're in. Um, you end up having uh, so much more opportunity that organically just appears. 
and you can then have more shots on goal to find like that mm-hmm. killer overlap of timing and passion and skill set and point in life where you can like you know just really be motivated and fall in love with something um and then at the same time like uh find a balance like there's been times in my life where I worked like a little bit too obsessively and you know and, and crazy and uh and I you know thankfully kind of like tried to correct that you know kind of the right opportunities but you know I think I probably appreciate a lot more now friendships that go way back um you know family and things like that and um and I I'm kind of have the personality where I could ease like I have like so much desire to really try to optimize like you know what I'm working on that I can easily go to a kind of an extreme and now I'm trying to like kind of find that balance and make sure that I have the friendships the family like relationship with the kids everything that like I don't uh I push really really hard but it kind of find a balance and and I think um people can be happy on uh actually many kind of extremes on that spectrum but it's easy to kind of inadvertently make a choice by how how you approach it that then becomes really hard to unwind um and so being very thoughtful about kind of all of those dimensions makes a lot of sense and so um the co- I mean those are all interrelated um but at the end of the day it's all it's love like, passion yeah. and love yeah. love towards you said uh yeah family friends family and hopefully one day if your work pans out Boris is love towards robots love towards robots <laughs> <laughs> not the creepy kind the good kind not the good kind uh just just friendship yeah. and yeah. Uh, and fun just yeah it's like another dimension to just how we yeah. interface with the world yeah. yeah boris you're one of my favorite human beings roboticist you've created some incredible robots and i think inspired countless people and like i said i hope cosmo i hope your work with anki lives on and uh, i can't wait what to see what you do with Waymo. I mean, that's if, if we're talking about artificial intelligence technology that has the potential to revolutionize so much of our world, that's it right there. So thank you so much for the work you've done and thank you for spending your valuable time talking with me. Thanks, Lex. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Boris Softman. To support this podcast, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now let me leave you with some words from Isaac Asimov. If you were to insist I was a robot, you might not consider me capable of love in some mystic human sense. Thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.